Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Primal Podcast. Meditation is something that I have found difficult to implement into my life on a consistent basis, but I've come to the conclusion that most of the time, I'm simply overcomplicating what should be a very simple and connected process. My guest today is Adam Starr, who is a resident teacher in the Tara Kadampa Meditation Center right here in Dublin. Adam has studied and taught Kadampa Buddhism and meditation for many, many years, and he joined me today for a beautiful conversation on not just meditation itself, but the foundation and fundamentals of what should be a self-care and self-exploration practice designed to bring us peace from and peace of mind. For me, rather than trying to learn multiple different meditation techniques, I found it was more important to try and understand why I was meditating and what it was I was trying to achieve. And in this beautiful conversation with Adam, that's exactly what we did. We discussed how to build compassion and empathy for yourself and how to generate that sense of peace in your life, no matter what format of meditation you use, and how that can translate outwards into your family, your friends, and your society, which is something that is not possible if you're not looking inward. I mentioned at the end of this episode, I genuinely felt so light after having this conversation with Adam. There's a sense of calm and peace that seems to follow him around, and it was an absolute pleasure to sit with him in the studio today. If you've struggled with meditation in the past like me, then this episode should help you to understand how to build a framework that works for you around generating that sense of inner peace. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to our shared journey to find the answers to questions about health, wellness, nutrition, performance, life, and success, and to craft the most resilient, hardy, and happy humans you've ever seen. Welcome to the Primal Podcast. Adam Starr, thank you so much for joining me on the Primal Podcast. I'm going to clarify because the title and the name I was sent first was Kadam or Kadam, Adam Starr. And I was like, is that his first name is Kadam or Kadam? And I, no matter how much I looked, I couldn't figure it out. But would you mind explaining first, first of all, for the people who are listening, what does Kadam mean? Yeah, Kadam is just like a like an honorary title within uh, the lineage I train within with is the Kadampa Buddhist lineage. So it's a title usually for a teacher, a lay teacher like myself, who has some experience of teaching and the practices. So essentially, it's an honorary title. So it's not actually your first name. My first name's Adam, yeah. Okay, well, it just Adam, rhymes nicely, Adam. Adam. It, it's, which is why it caught me off guard, yeah. yeah. But thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for being here. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Um, we have a multitude of areas that we're going to explore today. Um, Buddhism, meditation, spirituality, emotional resilience. But to start off, there's a question that I've enjoyed asking people recently because it's kind of more a more personal question to start off with. Um, you have obviously traveled quite a lot. You've experienced multiple different cultures. You've experienced a lot of different um, structures, structures within societies and things like that. You've met a lot of people. What are some of the differences you've noticed between most of our audience is Irish? So we would be in a fairly fast-paced corporate-style culture nowadays. Um, a lot of people are involved in office work or um, big companies, high-paced, it's fast, there's a lot of stress involved. What are some of the differences in the human condition or the human state that you might have noticed between a culture like ours and maybe some more peaceful or calmer cultures, <laughs> to use those words? Yeah, I mean, I think I think essentially nowadays, um, pretty much everywhere you go, really, people are struggling with mental and emotional well-being and resilience as a result of our increasingly materialistic culture. So where there's a significant increase in material, materialism or material wealth and so forth, it also brings with it a lot of burdens and a lot of stresses and strains for people. So 
I think the more we kind of live with wisdom, the more we live with compassion, the greater peace of mind and happiness we naturally find. But if we're constantly trying to find that happiness outside of ourself, eventually it starts to weigh on our mind and weigh on us mentally and emotionally. So where there's a real drive to find happiness outside of yourself in societies that really focus on material development and almost ignore inner development, I think is where you find the the most amount of stress and the most amount of strain. And it's not to say that you can't have goals and ambitions and dreams within your modern society. It's just that if we just invest all our time and energy in finding happiness outside of ourselves, we find ever-increasing stress, anxiety, feelings of overwhelm at times. So it really depends on where you're looking. Um, Everywhere I've been, if somebody's really trying to live more with wisdom and compassion in their heart, and through that finding a deeper peace and happiness, it doesn't make a difference whether you're working in the corporate world or you're simply working in a simple job, you will find that deeper peace and happiness and sense of fulfillment and contentment that everybody's looking for. Mm, I heard an interesting, um, it was actually Patrick McKeown mentioned on the last podcast, it seems to be a condition of civilization that the more we develop, the more exposure we have to this drive or this need or even this um, encouragement to seek external happiness and pleasure. And most of my friends, I haven't actually traveled this far, but most of my friends who would have visited countries like Vietnam or some of the Asian countries or some countries who would be known for maybe less economic growth or status, they've all across the board said to me, the people are happier, they're friendlier, they are more welcoming, they are more willing to share what little they have. And then you look at our culture and there's a lot less of that. I'm not saying that the people themselves are inherently bad. But there's a lot less willingness to engage and to share and to welcome. And Ireland are known as the, the friendliest, most welcoming country in the world. Hasn't been my experience. And it's just, and as you've pointed out there, it seems to be a difference in the environment that we live in. Because within all of us, I think there's the potential for this love and this compassion and this, this sharing. Um, how have you, in terms of the the our culture, compared to people who are not as externally driven, how have you found found that it's manifested in people in our um, in our environments in terms of how they feel about themselves and how they go about their daily day? Yeah, I think I mean it, it's it's obvious, and I think um, as you know yourself, Dan, if you just look around at friends, family, and people who are struggling with various levels of stress or anxiety or depression and so forth, what happens is we get to this place where if we're not really doing some deeper work in our hearts and in our lives on really taking very good care of our mental and emotional well-being and resilience, what inevitably happens is you land in a place where you don't feel particularly good within yourself. So maybe increasing levels of stress, increasing levels of anxiety or discouragement. As that begins to deepen within an individual, within anyone, basically what happens over time is you don't feel particularly good within yourself. And as a result of that, somewhat unconsciously, we don't start to, we start to feel less and less good about ourselves, feeling we're never enough or we're never good enough. And then we start to feel increasingly not very good about life. And that sometimes we feel the solution is to drive ourselves harder so that we can finally feel at peace with ourselves, accomplish our goals and so forth, and then feel, start to feel good about ourselves and good about life. And the problem with that is the harder you drive, the more disturbed, more emotionally um, affected you become as a result of that. So you start to feel really not good within yourself, good about yourself or life, even more so than previously. So it's really like when we all think about that a little bit more deeply, we do need to step back and give ourselves a break and really begin to let go of those drives and look at life from a healthier place. And from that healthier place, it doesn't mean, as I say, that you don't still have dreams and goals that you're trying to accomplish. You're just not com- com- coming from this deeply limited place that feels like only if I accomplish that, 
Will I feel good within myself and about myself? You can feel good within yourself and about yourself just through improving your peace of mind, improving your mental and emotional well-being and resilience. And therefore, you start to connect to your potential to change, to grow, to evolve. Mm, I feel like this is an idea a lot of people are familiar with hearing about nowadays. I will be happy when. And the kind of the message that I'm hearing now is the happiness is here right now. It's just about feeling it, embracing it, being present. Present is it presence is a big word that I'm kind of playing with at the moment because it's right here. It's right now. You have the ability to feel it. And it doesn't mean a part of the reason I do this podcast is because there is an element of maybe the meditation world or the holistic or wellness world that's quite inaccessible for the average person, whatever the average person is. But it's it's it seems out there and it seems like I have to sacrifice my life. And the, the the world I've built for myself and pursue this state of perfect balance and peace. But in order to do this, I have to move to a monastery and wear the robes and, and do a silent retreat. And that's not actually the case. It's, it's why I like to do this, because I would be the average person. I'd be just a normal guy. And I've found that by implementing a lot of the, the things you've talked about and maybe looking inward a little bit, it's drastically improved the quality of all of my life. I haven't had to really give up anything. It's just improved everything that I have. I'm a lot more grateful, a lot more, have a lot more presence of mind, a lot more peace in my life. And I, 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 why I love these conversations is it illustrates that nicely. And you're going to help us t today with, with some of these terms as well. You don't have to go flat out 100% as a meditator and move to a different world and completely um, become anti-materialistic, anti-capitalist world and tear down the, 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 the whole society. It's just about reintegrating a lot of this into what you currently do. That'd be fair enough to say. Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's a really good point you bring up because I think that's where, you know, the kind of misunderstanding around meditation and living with more wisdom and compassion more consciously in daily life is kind of making people step back. I don't think that's for me. But actually, it's far more simple at the beginning than people think and can be fully integrated into a normal, busy daily life and schedule and so forth. If that were the case that you had to go off and live in a cave in Tibet or something to really deepen your experience, I never would have started and I probably still wouldn't be practicing. Uh, for me, it started very much like I met meditation, Buddhist meditation in London back in 1997 is when I started to meditate and I had a really busy career, a really crazy life. And I just started to internalize a degree of that into my life every day. So I started to sit to meditate just consistently. And as a result of that, like you're saying, Dan, I started to feel the profound benefits of that, not just for my own peace of mind, my own happiness, my own resilience, but also it just started to improve all areas of my life. You know, that statement that's sometimes attributed to JFK, a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm. Well, for me, that's really been the journey of meditation. It's always continually and endlessly surprising me how much it leads into all other areas of your life, not just your mental and emotional well-being, you start to notice your physical well-being improving, you start to notice your relationships like significantly improve over time and your relationship to yourself like we were looking at a moment ago, like really deeply improves over time. So when you start to bring in a simple maybe 10 to 15 minute breathing meditation practice into your day and life, you can start to gain some real deep experience and some real insights into what's true about yourself, others in life, just through starting with that process. So when people think it's not for me, it's like there's no one in this world that doesn't want to be happy and want to experience a deeper peace of mind and happiness than they're experiencing at the moment. No one, you know, whatever way we articulate it, whatever way we try to find it, everyone wants that at a deeper level, like in their hearts. And so what you find through meditation is you discover this way of accessing and beginning to develop and maintain a deeper happiness, a deeper sense of resilience through basically 
cultivate and improve your peace of mind. So I think when we start from there, you know, like often people say to me, I, I can't meditate. It's just, it's not for me. I'm not that kind of person. And I say, it's not that you can't meditate. It's just, you don't have a deeper why for sitting to meditate. If your why is clear enough to you and compelling enough for you, you will definitely sit and meditate. So it's starting with that. What is my why? Not what is it for other people? How is it that other people do it? And I'm not that kind of person. Just ask yourself, why would you want to do it? Like, what is it you want from your meditation practice? And start working towards that through the meditation practice. And then you'll be happy to see. Intent. 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 It's it's interesting to me how many different conversations circle around this word intent. I mentioned before, a lot of what I would have focused on before was body-centric. It was nutrition and performance and health and wellness and not a lot of emotional or spiritual or psychological wellness, I suppose. But the in, the intent behind each one of those things is important. The intent behind why we do everything really dictates the outcome I found. And um, when people used to come and work with us for their health, their physical health, not having a strong enough why or reason for doing it meant that their outcomes were poor. Nothing to do with the treatments or interventions or their lifestyle. Or it was it was if they didn't have enough of a mo- an internal factor motivating them to do this thing, their outcome would be really, really poor. And it was probably one of the biggest factors that influenced all people's outcomes. Um, as I said, not the treatment protocols, not anything else, not their family, not not the, the techniques they were using in, in the meditation world, not the specific type of meditation or how long they did it for. It's the why. It's the intent. And it's, it's, it's I find it can be the swaying factor behind everything. I often use social media as an example. Social media can be a very powerful tool. It can connect people. It can grow a business. It can be very positive. If your intent is to consciously use it as that tool, if you don't have an intent, which is probably the worst, the worst, rather than having a bad intent, if you don't have any intent, you're just being consumed by the social media as opposed to consuming the content. You're just mindlessly scrolling, consuming, and your outcome is going to be poor. So it's the same thing. And it's the same person using it, but the intent completely shifts the outcome from using that. And you can apply that to everything I said before, coffee, food, drink, meditation, breath work, everything. The intent is massively important. Um, when, when you're working with people from a meditation point of view, do you find that most people come with an intent or is there intent to find the cure? Yeah. I mean, I think they definitely do come with an intention to a degree. You know, like maybe, you know, we were talking earlier, it's, it's like when people... Um, Often when they come to meditation or a meditation center, especially like I was saying, when, you know, post pandemic, I saw a lot of people coming because really they were carrying a lot of mental and emotional wear and tear as a result of that um, period of time and hadn't really processed it, didn't really know how to process it in fairness to them. So they felt very much kind of like a bit lost with that, don't know how to move forward with that. And so maybe weren't getting help with that. So they'd come to the meditation center to try and see if there's a solution to kind of alleviate that stress, that anxiety or those feelings of depression as a result of that period. The challenge then for people is they do come with a degree of intention and then they sit down to meditate to kind of get some, alleviate those symptoms. But as soon as they turn in a meditation, which is what you're doing in meditation, you're turning and with some degree of courage at the beginning for anyone who's going to do this. You got to turn in and then face that turbulent emotions, thoughts, feelings. It's not like meditation is enhancing or increasing those thoughts and feelings. It's just revealing what's happening in your mind all day long. But we're not normally aware or self-aware enough to understand what's going on in our mind. We distract ourselves from those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. So when somebody sits to meditate, they turn into that. And after like maybe two, three sessions, they often just give up because they think 
I can't deal with this. I just want to distract myself from this, but it doesn't then get any better. But sometimes when people turn in, they just feel like I'm not getting relief of this. But if they were just relaxed and just patient with themselves and patient with the process, eventually through meditation, you can work through all that stuff, begin to release your mind from the grip of those really turbulent emotions and unhealthy thoughts and feelings. But you do have to be super patient with yourself in the process. And then you also get some people who they do turn up and yeah, they get some temporary relief. They're loving it. They're getting on with it. And then they think, I'm fine. I'm good to go now until the next time. And then what we're really doing in meditation is continually investing in our future mental and emotional well-being and resilience. We're constantly accomplishing increasing levels of mental and emotional well-being, deeper peace of mind, a deeper sense of happiness, a deeper resilience that when you meet the next challenging situation, you feel ready to deal with it. So a lot of people do come to your point, Dan, with an intention, but the intention isn't deep enough. Mm. And it's an interesting thing you bring up that because I think sometimes people think it's just intention. But intention can be, I intend to, but I never get around to. (laughs) And so a lot of people within the meditation tradition and the Buddhist meditation tradition that I train in with, a lot of people really kind of discover over time how to increase the power of intention through your meditation practice. So for example, use a simple example. If I were to ask you, are you a sea swimmer? You know, we're out in the north side of Dublin. You're in Swords. I'm in Malahide. A lot of people here, as you know, sea swim. Are you a sea swimmer? Your instinctive response to that answer will not be based on what you think you are or what you intend to be, rather what you have experience of in your heart. So if, for example, every day you go to swim in the sea and I ask you, are you a sea swimmer? You'll just say, yeah, of course. It's not like you're having to say that, think about that. There's just a natural confidence that comes from your experience of doing that. So if you have that view of yourself as a sweet sea swimmer, your intention will strengthen and move you to act, to sit swim. So if you have a strong intention to swim, coming from a view that you're a sea swimmer, you will just swim every day. And then gradually all of your actions flow from that, from your intention. And then your way of life becomes a result of that. So often when people think about intention, they think, well, if I just have a why, that'll be good to go. No, well, yeah, a why at the beginning and just know that that's going to buckle when you're under the challenges of life. So if I have the intention to meditate, sometimes I'll just keep the intention and never get around to it. I intend to meditate. Where is that coming from? Essentially, it's coming from how I view myself. I don't view myself as a meditator. I'm not a meditator. (laughs) I have the intention to meditate, but I don't view myself as a meditator. Why do I not view myself as a meditator? because I have no experience of meditation. So how can I have a powerful intention? So if we go back and start at the beginning, and just like start from the beginning, if you start to give ourselves time and space to just sit and meditate and gain that experience, gradually your view of yourself will naturally change. You'll understand, actually, I can access a deeper degree of peace, a deeper degree of happiness through meditation practice. My view of myself is beginning to change as someone who has the potential to have increasing peace and happiness and somebody who meditates. From that, your intention will get far more powerful. It'll be more clear for you, more compelling to you, because you know I have the potential to change. I can find a deeper peace and happiness within myself. And then you'll notice your actions just naturally flow from that. You want to sit and meditate every day, and then you have a meditator's way of life. Mm. So the key is to know with intention. It's not just good enough to have an intellectual idea, an intention in your head, what you want to do. It's have deep experience in your heart of what you do. And then your view of yourself will change. Your intention becomes more powerful, more consistent, 
and your actions are more just like flow, not mm. like forcing yourself to sit and meditate, beat yourself up because you need to be more peaceful today. It's just that kind of state of flow that happens through making that first change in experience. So one change can kind of lead to much more powerful, consistent sense of self-esteem and view of who you are, a more powerful intention for doing what you're doing, and a natural flow of action and way of life that comes from that. So I think when people uh, feel discouraged or they feel they're not a meditator, sometimes I say, is it that you're not a meditator or you don't meditate? Now you're speaking my language. I, I love this conversation because it's actually, it's it's happening in multiple spheres at the moment. You mentioned it from a meditation point of view. And this idea of, I, I remember when this book, The Secret, came out first, and I haven't actually read the book, but this idea of manifestation, and I'm like, the power of thought is very powerful, but you have to act. Uh, has to become, you can't just act without thought, intent. You can't have no intent. And you can't just have intent and no action, like you've just alluded to there. And there's a, I think it was Alex Hormozzi. Are you familiar with Hormozzi? It is a phrase he's used that's it's gotten again a lot of publicity recently. It's this idea of confidence is not about screaming self-affirmations in the mirror. It's about building an undeniable stack of proof that you are who you say you are. And it kind of sums up this conversation for me. And just like you've said there, runners run, swimmers swim, writers write, meditators meditate. So if you meditate, you are a meditator. It doesn't matter if you don't have 50 years, but every time you do it, you reinforce that idea in your own head that I am a person who meditates. Um, it's an idea James Clear has popularized in his Atomic Habits book as well, which I think people miss this idea. They're looking for the technique. How do I build a habit? And most of what he says is you become the type of person who does the thing that you want to do. If it's training, I am someone who trains. And every time I train, I'm reinforcing that idea in my head that I am someone who trains. So meditation is, I, I personally, meditation is an area I have found this. I, I constantly use the narrative, I struggle with meditation. I'm bad at meditation. I'm not a meditator. And then, I, as I mentioned to you earlier on, all I do now is I have a, a little technique, put on a, a, some nature sounds and I sit. And that's meditation. So now I am a meditator. And every time I do it, I feel more empowered about, I do. And so now when people ask me, do I meditate? I'm like, well, actually I do a little bit. Yeah. So it's reinforcing this idea in my head because I have proof for myself that I do the thing. Um, and with meditation specifically, this is why I mentioned earlier on that a lot of people might view it as very inaccessible because you mentioned to me, which we will talk about, that you've done some pretty incredible feats of self-exploration, like three month long silent retreats and things like this. And immediately I'm like, oh my God, I could never do that. But then you helped me remember, well, I probably could do that if I had an intent, if it was something I wanted to do. And if I slowly built up towards that, on that journey, every step of the way, I would feel more comfortable with the goal I'm trying to achieve because I have more proof behind me that I'm moving, I've been able to move towards that goal. So I think why this is so frustrating for people, empowering and frustrating in two, in two parts. Uh, frustrating because man, that seems like a lot of work, Adam. It seems like a lot of work. Can I not just be a meditator right now? It seems like a lot of work, but empowering because, okay, so you're saying that I can actually change this view, this negative view I have of me not being a meditator just by starting, by having some sort of intent and by starting. That's quite empowering for me. And in a week's time, I'm probably going to feel a bit better. In a month's time, in a year's time, this will be a totally different conversation for us. That That's the part I really want people to focus on is that you can do this. This is not condescending. You can do it. It is very powerful. But it will just take a few small steps to build that bit of momentum. And once you have momentum, it's not that it gets really easy, but you've you've more motion. There's more motion and it's you start to kind of feel the process a bit more. But all of these phrases that people haven't started yet, 
they don't sound great. <laughs> they don't sound very attractive. Just, just give me the technique. What's the magic technique, Adam? <laughs> Tell me what it is. You've mentioned a couple of phrases so far. I just want to, because they were on my list anyway, I'd like to, to dive into them. And um, this idea of anxiety and depression, you've mentioned a couple of times. Um, my thoughts on anxiety and depression, I've worked with a lot of people who, who struggle. I've, I've gone through periods of my time myself where I, I felt anxious and I felt uh, depressed and down and low and sad. But how I view it in the majority of cases nowadays is more as a state of anxiety and a state of depression as opposed to a condition or an illness. Sometimes can be a controversial thing to say. If you think about it, it's not actually controversial at all because we are people who constantly experience different states of being. Um, but I truly believe that many of us have a lot more power to control is maybe too strong of a word, but to, to maneuver through or to work through these states. What's your kind of um, impression or opinion or feeling on these words at the moment? Because they're very, very popular words to, to, to use in conversation at the moment today, especially. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, firstly, it's one of the reasons why often people come to meditation classes. It's one of the most, uh, you know, prevalent situations people are dealing with stress, anxiety and increasing levels of burnout actually through their work and through their lives. And so what we discover through over two and a half thousand years of Buddhist psychology and meditating pra meditation practice that helps us kind of really deeply dive into the nature and function of the mind through our meditative practice is that actually anxiety can be profoundly debilitating. There's no doubt depression can be unbelievably debilitating. But if we actually try to trace back the source of our anxiety and our depression, we often think, well, it's the world and the way the world is. And how people are interacting with me on a daily basis. And I look around the world at the moment and it's a bit of a mess and that's what's inducing my anxiety or depression. The truth is that's what we would say within this kind of training is the outer problem, the way the world is you know, unfolding today, your life is unfolding today. The real problem for us as human beings is the inner problem of these feelings of anxiety or depression that are arising in our mind and here when we meet these difficulties and challenges out there. So at least when we start to be very clear what the real problem is, is this inner problem of mental and emotional suffering, in this case expressed as anxiety or depression, we start to bring it in. OK, that's where the work's to be done. How do I work with these thoughts, feelings and emotions? And then we look a little bit more deeply in meditation. OK, so I'm suffering from anxiety, basically thinking I can't be happy unless this goes well today or that goes well today. And we're grasping very tightly at that belief. If the world is okay today, if work isn't overwhelming today, I'll be okay today. The problem is work is rarely goes easy. <laughs> the world is rarely in a state of balance. And so, but we're holding onto this deep seated, largely unconscious, meaning we're not really cognizant of a belief that I can't be happy unless everything goes well out there today. But actually that's just a view. And when we sit to meditate, we explore that. We look where that's coming from. And there are many different levels of exploring that. But essentially, when you sit to meditate, you can just basically use a simple meditation like breathing to let go of the feelings of anxiety that are rising in the mind because we're grasping tightly at this view. And as you start to let go of the feelings, you start to let go of the grip the anxiety has on your mind and that view, I can't be happy unless. And what you discover is the more you let go, the more you have an increasing sense of inner peace or peace of mind naturally arising as a result of that letting go. And then you re realize, actually, I can be happy as long as I don't indulge and get caught up and lost in that anxiety. As long as I learn how to use work with my breath to let go, focusing on the breath, letting go, focusing on anything else, 
I can reconnect with a degree of peace and a degree of happiness within the mind. So I can be happy as long as I don't indulge that anxiety or maybe those ruminating thoughts that are leading to a profound sense of depression. But this is like a process over a period of time. And then what happens in meditation is you really, meditation is very much about developing wisdom and insight into what's true about yourself, what's true about others, and what's true about life. And so say, let's say in this context, I can't be happy unless this world goes the way I want it today or if my work goes the way I want it today. If we're holding strongly onto that belief, it's obviously completely coming from a lack of understanding what's true about yourself, others, and life. The world always will be up and down. Things will always go up and down and work. When you can really, in your heart, deeply accept that truth, like through meditation, you learn how to deeply accept that truth, develop increasing mindfulness of that truth in, day in, in your day in your life. When you can really deeply accept that truth, you're at peace with the ever-changing nature of the world and your work and your life. The deeper the acceptance in your heart, which you can deepen through training and meditation, the less anxiety. Like, it's normal things going wrong and it's happening anyway. My goal now is not to try and control everything out there as if I could anyway, but just to begin to work with my mind in here and learn to accept and be at peace with the truth of life, which it's always mm -hmm. problematic. So the deeper the acceptance in your heart, the less there's the possibility of anxiety arising in your mind because you realize now I'm understanding. Previously, I thought I can't be happy unless everything goes perfect. Now I'm understanding I can be happy as long as I let go of that turbulent anxiety and accept life as it is. So now you're undermining the tendency towards anxiety. You're also undermining the tendency towards depression. So as you say, yes, anxiety can feel incredibly crippling as can depression. But there is a way through it. It's not an inherent part of human nature, nor is depression. It's just habits of mind that generate these disturbing thoughts, feelings, emotions, and then we get stuck in them, overly identified with them, but that's another talk, overly identified with them, therefore feeling we can't do anything about them. So therefore we feel lost and disempowered. But I suppose what I'm saying, Dan, is that's not a theory. That's just the experience of someone who meditates and works through their stuff on a daily basis. Meditation is the most profoundly healing and transformative practice you can engage in on a daily basis that has huge consequences for how you live your day and your life. So if somebody's working with that, they become increasingly confident that I don't have to live with this anxiety forever. doesn't mean every day is perfect and you don't have anxiety, or you don't get depressed now and again. But you're beginning to reduce the power of the tendencies within the mind that give rise to that strong anxiety or depression. I love this. Beautiful explanation. Thank you for that. It reminds me of the phrase, it's the difference between pain and suffering. And I do I do want to acknowledge here because sometimes even when I listen to, to, to um, pieces like you've just shared with us there, sometimes it's hard, especially if there's somebody listening right now who is currently s experiencing these feelings of, of depression and anxiety. This is not to say it's not painful. It's excruciatingly painful. But the suffering can be optional. And optional makes it sound again like you have a choice. We, we do have a choice in in, and it's a skill we can develop, like you've explained to us there, to interpret that pain as something that we do have a level of control over. So I think this is what I'm trying to get at here. It's the it, the fact that when you, we are struggling, and personally when I've struggled with feelings of depression, it's a lack of a feeling of a lack of control. I have no power over this situation here. I'm powerless. And that it's a, it's a spiraling situation then. And we won't we won't delve too deep into this, but combined with all of this, I'm fully aware that oftentimes when we experience these feelings, we're also trying to manage them with external 
things like alcohol or drugs or, or, or things like that, and it, which complicates the feelings for us. So it's, I'm not saying it's easy to sit there to feel the pain and go, oh, I have control over this pain. I am not depressed anymore. It's not what I'm saying. However, as a, as a shining beacon of hope for people, we do have a lot of control over the way we interpret the feelings that we feel because the pain will come. There will be the deaths and the, the, the awful things that happen in life and the struggles that we go through as human beings. It's part of, part of the journey. But how we interpret that pain and how we respond internally to that pain will, in many cases, dictate the outcome, how we feel, the anxiety, the depression, how we spiral or how we recover from this, how long we have to experience these feelings for and how much, how deeply they impact us on a, on a, a deep personal, emotional level. We have a lot to say in that. And for me, that idea was transformative. So now it's, I, I don't experience any less anxiety now. I, I experience a lot of anxiety in my life, but now it's really transient. It's it's almost as before it would be four or five days if I went through a really difficult period. Burnout was a was it was a big thing in my life. If I went through a particularly difficult period, I could be four, five, six, seven days, two weeks, constantly anxious, and it would affect my relationships, which would in turn affect how bad I felt about myself, and it would affect my work, which in turn it would affect everything. Whereas now I I still feel the anxiety, I still feel the panic, but now I'm like, well, okay, this is an emotion. I have control over this. I, I don't necessarily have specific meditation techniques I do, but I know there's certain things that I can do in my life to to regulate myself, to bring myself back down. And the feeling passes. I'm like, oh, I was, I was anxious two hours ago and I'm actually okay now. And it could be a combination of little things. Like from a physical perspective, I'd stay away from caffeine. I get better sleep. I try and connect on a deeper level with my children and with my fiance. I try and surround myself with people who I find positive and, and that helps. And then from an internal point of view, I try and really acknowledge, okay, well, this is a feeling, you're feeling it, but it's okay. Sit with it for a while. Okay, it's starting to diminish a little bit. That means I have some power here. Okay, let's go a little bit more. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, I actually feel fine again. And that for me has been completely transformative. So it's not to say that it doesn't really, really hurt and it's not real, but it is to say that we have a lot more control over it. So I, I love the way you've explained that there because that's how my, my thinking goes now. It's like, it's not dismissing the fact that these are real human emotions. But it is acknowledging the fact that we have a we have a part to play in this. We absolutely have a part to play in this. Um, Buddhism. <laughs> to just give one word as a title for the next part of the conversation here. Um, a lot of these ideas I have heard filter down from the Buddhist psychology, but it's an area I am not familiar with. A lot, I, I feel like nowadays it's a very popular psychology to discuss and to throw around different elements of the Buddhist psychology or the Buddhist way of life. But could you ba maybe give us a, a bit of a deeper understanding of the Buddhist psychology and what, what this word means and what, what this set of beliefs or this life means? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the words that are thrown around sometimes are thrown around out of context and then people can misinterpret and misunderstand what's being said. So it's giving it some context is really important. And Buddhism really is is discovering through your own direct experience, through meditation and how you live your day in your life, that everyone has far more potential within them than their normal limited perspective or ego limited perspective indicates they may have. So Buddhism really is about discovering the inner potential within everyone for far deeper wisdom, far deeper compassion, a far deeper peace and happiness and resilience than we presently think possible. And on that journey, what you're doing is you're basically, um, through your meditation practice, you're developing a deeper wisdom insight, as I was saying earlier on, into what's true about yourself, others, and life. And you're developing a deeper compassion with respect to yourself, 
others. And so what you're doing through this training and wisdom and compassion, you're increasing your peace of mind and happiness, beginning to be find more and more freedom from the suffering that we experience in everyday life. And through that, you're discovering this potential within you to live with ever increasing love, compassion, wisdom, and ever increasing peace, happiness, and resilience. And as you progress on that journey of training in these methods day in, day out in a normal everyday life, you start to become that person more and more. You start to relate to yourself quite naturally in that way more and more just through, as I was saying earlier on, your own direct experience, not because you have a view of yourself as a Buddhist, because you have the experience of that wisdom, that compassion growing in your heart, the actions that flow from that in your day, in your life, and the peace of mind and happiness and resilience that brings to you in everyday life and the ups and downs of everyday life. So it's really a a, a path of um, deep inner development and inner change that we can all engage in and we can all embrace an aspect of it, even if not all of it. So Buddhism isn't for Buddhists. It's a, it's a way of life that anyone can embrace aspects of, internalize within their own life and what's relevant to them and what's meaningful for them and begin to work with any aspect of that and over time discover the deep benefits of that for our mental and emotional well-being and resilience. So in essence, that's what it is. It's discovering the truth of human potential, that there's an innate peace and goodness within everyone. Most people are absolutely convinced it's the complete opposite. But if we had to have a conversation about me trying to convince somebody that's true, it would be a very, very short conversation. You have to sit in meditation and discover that to be true for yourself. So like Buddha said, and one of the words that kind of are phrases that gets thrown around, Buddha says, don't believe me because my name is Buddha work it through yourself, discover it for yourself. And that is true. That is the essence of it. Can I discover this in my own direct experience, that I have this innate peace and goodness within me, a potential for far deeper peace, happiness, and good qualities within my heart? Your daily meditation practices and how you put those insights into practice in your daily life reveals that to be true for you over time. And then it's just living from that peaceful mind and good heart more and more every day. And you notice through that, this deeper level of mental and emotional well-being and resilience just naturally becomes more your experience over time. So I guess for me, what I love about that Buddhist lineage and this particular Kadampa Buddhist lineage that I train in, it's like for everyone. Anyone can practice an aspect of it, a degree of it, and find that to be true for themselves, whether they're Buddhist or not. So, yeah. So something very interesting there. Most people have good in them, but most people think it's the opposite. Why, why do you say that? Well, I mean, there are a number of different reasons why we're absolutely convinced we don't. Um, I, I best, the best analogy that I've um, found to, to, to kind of reflect this is Buddha's analogy of like this gold nugget in dirt. What he described was that everybody has this innate peace and goodness within their heart. And the reason why we don't is because it's like mud on a gold nugget. Our unhealthy emotions, our unhealthy conditioning that comes from a long life and from a Buddhist point of view, long lives. Um, it basically is like all of our tendencies towards anger or tendencies towards strong craving or attachment or tendencies towards confusion and ignorance or the turbulent emotions they can generate like stress, fear, anxiety, depression and so forth. This is like the mud on the gold nugget. That's what we're hugely familiar with. So somewhat unconsciously, again, what I mean by that is we're not cognizant of it. We naturally identify with what we're familiar with as if it's essential to who we are. So often that's why I was saying earlier on when people don't feel good within themselves because of all that mud, they don't start, uh, they start to feel less and less good about themselves, feeling they're never enough or they're never good enough or there's no goodness in me. I don't know what you're talking about. 
And as a result of that, they get stuck in this sense of self-identification that feels they're never enough, never good enough, and they don't feel good about their life or their potential to change in life. Whereas what you discover in meditation is you sit, you let go of what's bothering your mind or what's burdening your mind. So it may be just a simple breathing meditation at the beginning, but there are deeper meditations to like, say, for example, clear the mud and declutter the mind and let go of these unhealthy, afflictive thoughts, feelings, emotions. And as you let go more and more, it's like the mud starts to clear and you start to connect to an innate peace within your heart and the natural goodness of your heart through this. So you're like connecting with that gold nugget. You're discovering something deeper that's true of yourself. And over time, through your own understanding, you start to understand that's true of everyone I know and everyone who's struggling. So you're not coming to that conclusion because there's an analogy that explains it. The analogy points to a truth you discover through your own meditation practice. So, for example, when you let go of what's bothering your mind and burdening your mind, it's like dissolving the mud. And then that sense of self or self-identification, that ego grasping at this limited sense of self, starts to naturally dissolve with it. We think, for example, some people think, no, I'm just an anxious person. You don't know me. You don't understand me. I'm an anxious person. And I often ask people like, so when you're not feeling anxiety, who are you then? If you don't have anxiety functioning in your mind, are you still an anxious person? Can you be an anxious person when you're not anxious? And so what happens is we identify with what's familiar to us as if it's essential to us. But we can see through our own experience in meditation, what's familiar can become less and less familiar. And we start to tune in to what's essential to us, that goal, that peaceful mind and good heart of what Buddha called our Buddha nature, this pure potential within everyone. But really, it's, it's even more simple than that, is when you're abiding in a degree of a peaceful mind, you notice those qualities like kindness and compassion or acceptance are just more naturally present. You can ask anybody that on this podcast is like, when are you at your most loving or your most compassionate? Are you most accepting? It's when you're most at peace. If you're not convinced of that, when you're at your least loving, your least compassionate, and your least accepting is when you're overwhelmed and stressed. So what happens is through meditation, you discover I can connect with this innate peace and goodness within me, connect with that gold that actually reflects the truth of who everyone is. But when you're abiding in that experience in meditation, learning to live from that experience more and more your day in your life, you begin to shift how you relate to yourself. Instead of relating to I'm never enough or I'm never good enough, identifying with the mud. By the way, we think it's concrete, not mud. There's no <laughs> way this is going to change. But as you start to let go more and more and you center in that peaceful mind and good heart and start to live out of that place more and more, you start to feel good within yourself. Got a peaceful mind and a good heart. You start to feel good about yourself and your potential to change. Your self-esteem just naturally establishes. Your confidence to become that person more and more every day naturally grows if we go back to what I was saying earlier on, it's your experience that changes your view of yourself, not theories and concepts. So as you start to deepen that experience, your view just naturally changes. Yeah, I have the potential to live with much more love and kindness and empathy and compassion and acceptance. I'm not thinking that in my head. I'm feeling that in my heart. And as a result of that, my life is flowing out of that more naturally. And therefore, my self-esteem and my self-confidence are growing very naturally. It's not some arrogance. It's just a natural experience that comes from growing experience, as you were saying earlier on. So when people are working with it that way, we can actually start to see how we can begin to move beyond all of that stuff and actually begin to live from an entirely different place. But you see, that isn't a truth that is owned by Buddhism. That's just a truth that was revealed by Buddha. And everyone can come to know that through their own experience. 
And again, Dan, it comes back to what you were saying earlier on. It doesn't mean every day is perfect. Some days the mud will just build and build and build. But that's okay. If you have a daily meditation practice, you know how to sit, meditate, clear the mud. Eventually the mud starts to feel like dust and you can easily access that innate peace and goodness of your heart. And those natural feelings of happiness and well-being and re-establish a degree at least of that peace of mind and good heart that you can then live from and act from. It's it's the other side of the coin we just spoke about. It's it's you are anxious so often that you convince yourself now you have the proof for yourself that you are an an anxious person. I'm just an anxious person because you've been anxious for so long. So we already possess that we just have a negativity bias. I think we're really good at doing it with the negative elements of ourselves. And all we're all we're trying to do now is to reverse that and just apply it to the more positive elements of ourselves, which, as you said, they're in there. It's the gold nugget. It is in there. So it's almost like we are allowing we're, we're proliferating the growth of this mud because I am an anxious person because I've been anxious for the last 10 years. I'm just anxious. That's who I am. Or I, I am depressed because I've just been depressed for 10 years. So we're already really good at building those layers of paint or, or, or peeling back the layers of the onion. Now it's just about reversing the process and focusing on the, the positive. Um, and you mentioned something interesting there, this concept of not enough. This is in every single um, event or group or sharing circle or ceremony I've ever been a part of, specifically for men now, but it, it, it's something that I have seen in, in females as well. This concept is just underneath the surface. It's, it was there for me. It came out immediately for me. As soon as we started to peel back the, the layers of mud for me, I'm not enough. And it, it seemed to be something that drove almost every decision I made in my day was based on this idea that I am not enough. And since having had the privilege of, of sharing with other men and having conversations like this, it's there for almost every single man I've spoken about. We're being driven by this idea that I am not enough. I am not a good person. I'm not able to provide or achieve. And hence why the, the drive is so strong then to get the bigger car or the bigger house or to progress and work is because that will make me enough. Therefore, I will be happy. Therefore, I will be a good person. Because as you pointed out earlier on, that's what we're all looking for. Most of us who are driven to do anything in life, it's because we're, we're searching for this feeling of obviously being, being enough, being accepted, being, being a good person and feeling that sense of peace within ourselves. And it was so interesting that, that just that phrase, not enough, came up over and over and over and over again. And it's like when you, when you buy a red car, all you see is red cars. Once I realized that that was what was driving a lot of my decisions, I could then start to see it in almost every decision everybody else said. Which brings me to the next point you made there, which is this idea of compassion. I didn't know what it meant until I'd figured out that I was struggling with this idea that I'm not enough. And then all of a sudden, so many decisions I saw other people make, I was like, that's the same thing. That's the, he's feeling the same thing that I'm feeling here. So he's got the same pain. Oh my God, this person has the same pain. Now I feel, now I really feel bad for this person. Is that compassion? Now I actually have an emotional connection to this person. That must be compassion. So that that that's how I started to realize what compassion was, because these words we can understand um, intellectually. I know what the word means, but that was the first time I'd, I, I, when I realized that I was being driven by a feeling of insufficiency. I could then look at other people and say, this person's the same. This is just another version of me. And that's where I learned about what compassion actually meant. Um, and it actually changed, it instantly changed how I interacted with people. There was a lot more actual compassion there for people. Whereas before, I don't know, was I distant or cold, but I didn't have a huge amount of empathy for people because I just didn't feel feel it. I, I was like, oh, I'm very sorry for your troubles, but I never really felt it. Whereas now I feel like I'm feeling a lot more. It's still it's still a tiny percentage of, of the work I have to do, but I feel like I'm a lot more aware of the the struggles of my fellow human being. And I actually feel that on a deeper level. Do you find that as a common, a common theme? It's really interesting you bring that up because 
I, I totally resonate with that. And I think it's what I've seen a lot, and I certainly have experienced it myself. Um, I think the challenge is we can't really have a deep and consistent compassion for others unless we're directing that compassion yeah. in towards ourselves yeah. in a healthy way. Because often when we um, direct that kind of kindness and compassion in towards ourselves, we often then ends up in self-pity and self-loathing because we think like, I'm this loser. I can't deal with life. I'm too weak. I can't deal with the challenges of life. I need to be kind to myself. What somebody's unconsciously doing at that time and struggling with at that time is they're identifying with the mud, the unhealthy thoughts, feelings yeah. and emotions as if they reflect who I am inherently by nature, can't really change. So the only thing I can do is just be kind to myself, this deeply limited, stuck sense of self. And then I obviously want everybody else to respond to me in the same way. And if they don't see my pain and be kind to me, then, you know, it's easy, very easy for me to get lost in a ruminating mind that will drag me down into a deep and abiding depression. So people often think self-compassion is like this kind of just be kind to this deeply limited you that can't change, but that's really disempowering and disabling for, or disenabling for the person so they can't ever feel like they can truly change. Whereas what you're expressing, Dan, from what I can see is at some point you decided to work with something and then you started to see, actually, when I work with this, I can move beyond it. So I need to direct that compassion inwards and understand as I start to let go of some of these unhealthy habits of mind, the mud, as I started to begin to release my mind from the grip of those unhealthy emotions through meditation practice or whatever practices you use to work through that, eventually what happens is you start to just very naturally, this is what I was saying earlier on, it's not like some philosophy or some theory, it's just you very naturally start to tap in to that deeper truth of yourself, a deeper peace, a deeper goodness within your heart that just naturally manifests when you let go. So now you're looking inwards and you're thinking, the next time I'm lost in all this anxiety or depression or worries, I need to know that there is something deeper within me that I've accessed before and direct that compassion towards myself. And people often feel they're never enough and they don't live up to these very high, unrealistic expectations they have of themselves to be perfect. The reason they're doing that is because they feel I'm so imperfect. The only way I'm ever going to have peace of mind is if I'm perfect and I get everything perfectly right. There is no imperfect self. There is no inherently existing imperfect self. There just is someone who's struggling with their mind and their unhealthy habits of mind. So when we start to tap in to that sense of potential within us through meditation, whatever practices we're using, we start to tap into that goal more and more. We start to realize this reflects the truth of who I am, but I'm also very real. I'm also very honest what's going on here. I'm struggling most of the time to live up to that because the mud just keeps building up day and day. That is not a reason to berate myself. That is a reason to direct some compassion in towards myself and think, actually, give yourself a break. You don't need to berate yourself for being caught up in anger, frustration, stress, anxiety. You actually need to be kind and compassionate with yourself because you can move beyond this. This isn't who you are. It's just what you're stuck in at the moment. Connect, reconnect back to the truth of who you are. In fact, Buddha described that as an indestructible, indestructible truth of everyone and the potential within everyone. You can't destroy it. You can only temporarily obscure it. Now, when I first heard that, I used to think, that's a nice theory. Sounds good. <laughs> but actually, what you find is every time you sit to meditate and you clear the mud and you connect with the gold, you realize that's not some theory. That is just the truth of human nature and potential, the nature and potential of our minds. 
So you tap into that through compassion turning in, saying, okay, I'm overwhelmed with stuff, but it's not who I am. It's just what I'm caught up in at the moment. But I do need to be kind and not push myself and drive myself too hard to be better. Actually, I can just let it go, reconnect with that goodness within my heart and move forward from that sense of potential, from that sense of I can be better than this. I can work with this better over time. I'm not even sure if that phrasing, right, I can be better than this. Because again, what is this? As if that's who we are, it's not. So I think when we start to experience that, we start to realize what real self-compassion is. It's just a deep understanding of your own potential to be increasingly free of suffering, to be increasingly at peace and happy, but a deep acknowledgement that I'm not always going to feel that way. So like one of the things that took me a very, very long time to get with this and, and it really is more of a recent thing, I would say, in more recent years, but it has really changed how I see this and how I see others and how I see the potential in others is we have to get to a point through this kind of training where um, you're able to hold in a very relaxed way in your mind two seemingly contradictory statements to be true at the same time. You, I, everyone you love, everyone in this world has amazing potential for peace, for happiness, for good qualities of the heart. And you, I, and everyone in this world struggle to live up to that most of the time. You have to be able to hold those two at the same time in your own mind. So yeah, I have a potential, but I'm also real. I'm also honest. I struggle to live up to that because I'm a normal human being. But when I know those faults and limitations that I feel ridiculously and overly identified with don't reflect who I am, just what I'm struggling with, and I learn to use these practices to become increasingly free of them, I'm not overwhelmed by those. I'm just working through those. So it's a bit like a gardener, you know, a gardener looks out into a gardener, it's a mess. But if they have the wisdom that understands the potential within that garden, they're super relaxed about it. They say, okay, there's a lot of weeds there. I just need to uproot those on a daily basis. I need to cultivate the seeds and one day those, that garden will flourish. But the garden is very honest about what's going on. So meditation to me is a bit like this internal garden where you just think, yeah, I've got all this rubbish in my mind. I'm working through it, letting go of it. It's not reflect who I am, just what I'm stuck in and struggled with my whole life but also I'm cultivating that potential every day and living from that potential more and more. So then you're really at peace with yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like basically getting to a point where you feel you have nothing to hide from anyone. You know, we're always hiding that dark side of ourselves, thinking I'm hiding it because there's nothing I can do about it and it reflects the deeper truth of who I am. No, it doesn't. It just reflects what you're struggling with because you didn't even know you could become free of. But when you understand these two things, yeah, I have potential and I struggle, then you're really at peace with everything. It just can be very real. Like if you lose it with somebody, say, listen, I'm really sorry. Just the mud building up today. I didn't mean to, uh, you know, but that's what happens. And then you're at peace with yourself and you're at peace with your own imperfections because your imperfections don't reflect who you are. Just reflect what you've been struggling with up until now and you're becoming free of more and more day to day. It's amazing. How do we, this is going slightly off topic, but it's in the same vein. How do we reconcile then? I, I feel like I am more of a compassionate person than I was before. How do we reconcile some of the awful things that happen in the world? I I like to sit and think about it sometimes. Like there's, there's, there's conflicts going on at the moment. There's wars. There's awful things going on in the world. And sometimes I like to sit and think because I, I, I don't like getting caught up in the politics of it and the shouting and the this and the that. Because everybody's human. For, for me, the, my baseline I go to is just people struggling and suffering. It's people dying, struggling and suffering. That's awful. I don't, I don't understand the whys, but I know there's people struggling. On both sides of every conflict, people struggle and suffer. How do we reconcile this sense of compassion for fellow human being with the extreme ends of 
the people who seem to do really, really bad things. I'm not talking about good and evil. I'm talking about human beings who do really, really bad things. And I'm trying to be compassionate for these people because I know the only way they got there was through a series of mud or, or, or some, something happened or a series of something happened in these people's lives that led them there. And yes, there's a lot of manipulation and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, misdirection. And, and I don't know if there's a right or wrong in any of these conflicts, but as I'm sitting trying to think about the people who do things that are inherently seem really, really bad, and not not necessarily just in wars, just on a day-to-day basis, is some for someone like yourself who has so much experience with this level of exploration of yourself and other humans, how do you think about that type of thing? Well, I mean, I think you've almost answered it yourself, and I think that's that's the key. It's like there is no way on this earth that you're going to be able to feel compassion for those people, people at extremes of evil action and deeds. There's no way, like absolutely impossible, unless we start within ourselves and we can be at peace with who we are and when we lose it. So it, it seems too simple, really, for people. Sometimes they, we want this, this answer yeah. to what about the extremes? You can't understand the extremes of human nature and actions unless you can understand yourself. So I would say... For me, definitely has been that is like really getting to understand through meditation and also through how you try to live your day in life, a deeper understanding of wisdom, what's true about yourself and others. And so as you start to understand what we've just been looking at today, you know, like the mud and the gold nugget, you're able to be at peace with that. I definitely have these tendencies for anger within my mind. I definitely have these tendencies for hatred within my mind. I definitely have these tendencies to completely lose it and have a rage in my mind with other people. That is just true. That is just the truth of the way we are at the moment. We're not fixed in that way. And through our own, you know, exploration and meditation and training in these methods, gradually over time, we can understand I can become increasingly free of that. And when I act from that, I'm not acting from a free and conscious choice. I'm acting from being under the grip of anger in my mind or rage within my mind. People often think that anger is like, you know, a free and conscious choice to act, you know, with this anger. It isn't. Anger is just simply a, a response to feeling overwhelmed and not being able to cope with your emotions and then you express them. So, for example, if somebody says something to me and I feel hurt by what they say, um, immediately my mind tri- is triggered to think that person has caused this hurt. But actually, I can only really feel these feelings of hurt if I'm identifying deeply with a sense of self that can't deal with life or who's coming from a place of hurt. And so what happens is if we're identifying with that limited perspective of ourself and not identifying with our potential, it's very easy to be triggered and feel hurt. And then as soon as we feel hurt, we think, well, you hurt me. And our mind goes into this exaggeration, let's say just of a family member, a friend, exaggeration of the faults that we perceive in them. But actually what's happening is the mind of anger is just exaggerating the faults and getting locked in on this idea that you are now my enemy. You know, so what happens is anger creates this appearance of enemies. We think it's now it's the person making me feel angry, but actually it's the anger in our mind appearing that person as an enemy. And what happens is we lock in on that idea, at least for that period of time, not forever, you know, if it's a loved one. But we lock in, this is my enemy. And then we say and do things we would never say and do if we were coming from that place of potential or that place of resilience or that place of acceptance, love and flexibility. But if we're triggered in this way, we feel hurt, we start to exaggerate their faults, lock in on this idea, they're my enemy, then we will say and do things that we would never, ever say and do in a normal situation. And so we're actually being wielded 
by the anger. It's like swinging a bat, but we're just being wielded constantly by the anger in our mind. And then we're saying and do things. And that's what we say. Like when the anger dies down and it dissolves away and they stop appearing as our enemy and we say, listen, I'm really, really sorry. I don't know what got into me. What got into us is just this angry wave within our mind that took a grip of us and controlled us and made us do crazy things. So if I can acknowledge that within myself, that when I'm under the control of anger, I am not making a free and conscious choice how I act. People often think, well, angry people look like they are. But you know when somebody gets really angry, try to have a conversation with an angry person. They can't say anything reasonable. It's all over the place. And we know we're like that. Now, if I can accept that within myself and understand, look, it's a tendency I have to work through, become increasingly free of, but I can't blame myself for having it. It's actually just my struggles with my mind. If I really understand that deeply within myself and direct that compassion in towards myself to become free of it, because I know I can over time, then I start to see that in everyone else. I mean, this is the key, and you may hear these kind of phrases banded around, but I think it's really important to understand. For me, it very much has been to degree my own experiences what you know, not, not what you think, but what you know in your heart to be true of yourself, you know to be true of everyone else. So, for example, if you know you have that potential within you, then everyone else for you just naturally appears that way. But when you know you struggle with your mind a lot of the time, you know everyone else is going to struggle with their mind too. So if we start there, we can start to accept the people in our life. And when they lose and get angry and do crazy things, we think, yeah, they're just struggling with their mind. There's no basis to judge them just to have compassion for them, like you were saying earlier. But also then you start to look at the world. What if somebody had a completely out of control mind, had no control over their mind whatsoever. What do you think they were going to do other than incredible acts of evil? But you see, if we can see that from that compassionate angle, it's not that we don't do something to try and resolve or in some way bring conflicts to an end and so forth. It's just we're looking at it from a deeper wisdom in our heart that understands actually they're not inherently evil. They're just completely out of control in their mind and engage in a lot of evil actions. And then at least we can have at least hope that there is a solution over time for at least within our own lives and the relationships we have. But it's that deeper wisdom that gives you the peace of mind to do something about all the anger you see in the world. Because what most people do about all the anger they see in the world is get angry about it. And all we're doing is anger, adding to the anger in the world. It doesn't reduce the anger when we get angry with all the angry people. In fact, when we get angry with the angry people, we're just in the same boat as them. As opposed to compassion that's looking to do, bring solutions to the world. Understanding that people are afflicted with these thoughts, feelings and emotions. And so when we look at it from that place, it doesn't make it necessarily easy to deal with every day. But it's just easier than it was previously when we thought we're all lost and there's nothing we can do to change. You have made some outrageously important points there, specifically given the modern world that we live in. Uh, military conflicts aside, the word trigger kept coming up in my head as you were speaking there. This idea that so many people get triggered nowadays by other people and what other people say and other people's beliefs, whether they be political or societal or cultural or whatever it is. And the immediate reaction is to get angry and to combat their belief with, it's not even your belief, it's just the opposite of their belief because in some way it has triggered you. And I have often considered, I used to get triggered a lot by things that had nothing really to do with me, but viewpoints that people, my friends or, or people I knew would express. And then I started to think, why am I getting this? Because this is making me really angry all the time. Why am I getting so angry all the time? Because the anger was filtering into other areas of my life. I was just, I was a more angry person in general. And I was like, this is coming from something. I'm allowing 
what other people are saying, and not even what other people are saying, what I'm consuming on the internet in from thousands of miles away to, to affect how I live my life and how it affects everybody else in my life and my family on a day-to-day basis. When I was thinking about it, it was like, the, the, the more I allow these people to affect how I think, the angrier I get. So how about I decide for myself how I feel on this issue? And then if they say how they feel, I acknowledge that they're just saying, they're just saying whatever has come into their head that day, or I, I don't know where their belief has come from, but it's not my belief. And also it doesn't affect my belief. So why do I get angry at that? So I started to withdraw from a lot of the conversations around these things that really had nothing to do with me. And I found my, let my, my general baseline of anger just disappeared. It completely disappeared. Now, I still get angry, but it's a lot more justifiable anger now. This is a situation that maybe need a bit of anger. But my general frustration and anger completely disappeared. So if we think about today, the, the modern landscape, the modern day, where you have people dis- disagreeing politically, you have people disagreeing on the basis of uh, their own identities, you have people struggling with their own sense of identity and then joining groups and fighting with other groups about that identity, be it political, religious, uh, sexual, gender, all these different identity wars that are going on at the moment that just seem like battles to win the war as opposed to journeys to figure out who we are. Based on what you've just said there, if we all spent a little bit of time Number one, which you already spoke about, accepting responsibility for ourselves, that we have control and responsibility for how we feel. And then number two, exploring what our identity actually is. My personal belief, and I've said this before, is 95% of these conflicts would go away, whether they be personal, political, interpersonal, intergroup, whatever. I think most of them would go away because we're all going inwards instead of outwards um, and shouting at each other and getting upset and getting annoyed. And Jordan Peterson's... uh, did a talk maybe four or five years ago and I heard it and he spoke about the Nazis and he spoke about all of these young men in the SS who did horrible, horrible things. And then he said, each and every one of us have the potential to do the exact same thing. And I was like, it's a pretty outrageous state. I'd never be in the SS. And I was like, well, hold on. Now, if I grew up in Nazi Germany and I was a 18 year old man and I was told all these awful things about these people and I was, I was, these beliefs were developed inside of me and all of my friends were doing the same thing and it started off with just a nice uniform and a bit of prestige and it developed into these awful, awful camps. God, that's, that's in me because it's in every human because these people were just like me and acknowledging that that element lives within us, that potential to do these things also means that there's potential to do good things. And what's the difference? The difference is the intent, as we spoke about earlier on, where did that intent come from? Is it being given to me by society or p- politics or a figurehead? Or am I deciding myself, this is how I want to live my life. I want to be compassionate, connected, peaceful, calm, good. If that's my intent, that potential is within me. But also, if I don't have that intent and I allow myself to be ruled, I could be an SS officer in Nazi Germany. And that is within me. And I found that I resisted it initially. And most people who hear this idea resist vehemently. I would never do that. I would never do that. I would never be this person in this war, this person doing this terrible thing. But that resistance kind of limits us to grow in a positive way as well because we have a fixed sense of who we are. And not only that, we're being being every day given more bits of identity to kind of plug into that. So we're developing this completely obscure sense of identity that has nothing to do with who we actually are. My belief is if we were able to avoid that and go inwards, we would eliminate all of that angst, most of that angst. Um, and you just outlined that beautifully in, in that, that that kind of monologue you had there a second ago. So thank you for that. Um, to move forward into some practical things that we can do, 
because we've covered a lot of the uh, the conceptual ideas around why we want to do this and the intent. You've mentioned meditation a lot, and obviously it's a huge part of what you do, and it's a huge part of your background. So let, let's go into meditation a little bit here. The word meditation, I feel, is, um, again, something that a lot of people, including myself, don't find accessible a lot of the time because we have this extreme view of what it is. But maybe could you give us a, a breakdown of meditation? What 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 is meditation? Yeah, sure. I suppose, I mean, it starts with this understanding what is the purpose of meditation. And the purpose of meditation is to develop an increasing sense of inner calm and peace of mind and the natural feelings of happiness and well-being that arise from that. Not just in the meditation session when you're sitting in meditation, but more and more through the ups and downs of life, you're able to develop and maintain this increasingly consistent experience of inner calm and peace of mind and the deeper feelings of happiness and well-being that just naturally arise from that. So that's the purpose of meditation. So when somebody's thinking, well, I don't know if meditation's for me, everybody just wants to be happy. But what we want to move beyond most of us is this fleeting moments of temporary pleasure and joy that come and go too quickly. And we're constantly chasing and getting exhausted chasing just these happiness hits. Meditation's about finding this deeper more consistent feeling of happiness and well-being that arises within you, the more you develop and maintain that inner calm and peace of mind through meditation and then carrying that through the ups and downs of your daily life. So to be very simple about meditation, meditation is an inner training whereby you turn your focus and attention fully inwards towards the mind and you focus on something in the meditation session that you can prove through your own direct experience is giving rise to an increasing sense of inner calm and peace of mind the more you train in it over time. So it's about focusing the mind without distraction over time. You learn how to let go of distractions, focus the mind single pointedly on something you can prove through your own direct experience, not theory or a book, is giving rise to an ever increasing sense of inner calm peace of mind and those natural feelings of happiness and well-being that come from that. Now, to be more precise, you may start, for example, with somebody and many people do nowadays where they start with a simple breathing meditation where you basically just sit down, turn your focus and attention inwards. And as you turn inwards, as I was saying earlier on, what you come up against is all that busyness and distraction that's rolling around your mind all day long. And most people, when they turn in, they think, well, that's it. I'm never going to meditate again because it's just increasing my busyness and distraction. Actually, all it's doing is giving you a window into what your mind's like all day long. It's why we find it nowadays very hard to just sit with our mind for a few moments without getting something to distract us from the discomfort we're feeling in our mind. But when you turn in a meditation over time, again, you direct that compassion inward. You think, yeah, this is what I'm working through. This is what I need to uproot over time and just become increasingly free of that mental and emotional clutter, distraction, agitated thoughts and feelings. So you're turning into that. And then what you try to do is just not give it any attention. It's not like you're trying to push away your thoughts or your distractions or repress your feelings. You're just simply allowing them to be, just seeing them as waves coming from the ocean of your mind, arising, dissolving, which they do anyway. But in meditation, what you're doing is you're just bringing your attention in this breathing meditation more and more to the breath as it enters and leaves through the nostrils. Just your normal breath, nothing unusual. You just become aware of the ebb and flow of breath. The more you focus your attention on that sensation of breath, what you'll notice is the thoughts, the feelings, the distractions, the agitation, the anxiety, the feelings of depression, they just dissolve and dissipate. 
because they're just like waves that rise from the ocean of your mind. People think, I'm just this inherently anxious person. I just can't seem to let go of anxiety. But if you notice what's going on in your mind, is either you're grasping at some sense of a separate self that feels very vulnerable, very a threat, and therefore you're generating all of this anxiety within your mind as a result of that. But that feeling of this separate ego-limited self dissolves more and more meditation, as do the anxious feelings that come with it. Or maybe you're thinking, I can't be happy unless, and you just can't get that thought out of your mind. I can't be happy unless this meditation goes well. And Mm -hmm. then your meditation seems to be increasing your anxiety. But if you were to just disengage from the thought, I can't be happy unless, and focus on your breath, well, then what you'd notice is the thought dissolves, but so does the anxious feelings that are associated with it. Feelings are always associated with various thoughts or views and beliefs. And so as they begin to dissolve more and more, what you notice is the more I focus on the breath, the more they naturally dissolve. I don't have to control them. I don't have to repress them. I don't have to stop thinking them. And if you try to stop thinking them, you're only going to think them more. Like if I say, stop thinking about an elephant, I'll say no more. You can't stop thinking about an elephant now. So people think I have to stop my thoughts. I have to empty my mind. No, you just have to train and focusing on one thing that as you focus on it more and more, you'll notice the dissolution of the waves of busyness, thoughts and distractions. And as you do that, what's really important to see for yourself is the more you let go, and it is a training and you can do over time, the more you naturally begin to access this calm, clear and peaceful mind at deeper and deeper levels over time. And you develop this insight, this wisdom insight into the true nature of the mind and what Buddhist meditators have known for two and a half thousand years and tried to encourage others to discover for themselves is the essential nature of the mind or consciousness is peace. The essential nature, not the normal state. The normal state is simply the result of these turbulent thoughts, feelings, emotions, but the essential, what's essential to us is peace. So as you focus on the breath, say, for example, in this way, you just start to tune into that incredibly natural experience of peace. And what you also discover is wherever there's a peaceful mind, there's always a natural feelings of happiness. Because what you discover in meditation is that deeper happiness that everybody wants, that everybody wants to be able to carry into their day in life. It's just the experience that comes from peace of mind. Happiness is getting a bad rap at the moment, you know, where people say, forget about happiness, happy, we should not be chasing happiness because it's exhausting. Only if you think that happiness is these fleeting moments of pleasure and joy. But when you understand, again, through your own direct experience, that real happiness, that deeper resonant happiness that everybody wants to have is just the experience of peace of mind then you understand that's the happiness I want to tune into. But what you discover in this meditation practice is the more you let go of what's bothering your mind and you tune into that natural peace within your heart, within your mind, also that natural feeling of happiness is there. So you're developing an insight. And that's what's important because, as you know, Dan, I'm sure like, you know, there are many different apps and so forth that teach us how to meditate. But what people often think it's just this settling of the mind or emptying of your mind. And that's Mm -hmm. what meditation is. When we do that, we're profoundly limiting what we can accomplish through our daily meditation practice. Meditation is really about developing a deeper insight into, for example, in this case, the nature of your mind and self. The nature of my mind is essentially peaceful, happy. But at the end of the day, I can't know that until I deeply and consistently experience that. Only then can I say that's true, because until then, I'm just listening to somebody else telling me it's true. But what I'm saying is if you sit to meditate on the breath, that will become self-evident over time. There's a natural peace and happiness within everyone. It's in fact 
from a Buddhist point of view, you can come to know there's a limitless capacity for peace of mind and happiness within everyone. The deeper you access that, the more confident you become in that, and you develop this confidence in your potential to live from that increasing peace and happiness in everyday life. And that's what I was saying earlier on. As your experience changes, your view of yourself changes and your potential to live with a deeper peace and happiness changes. And therefore your intention becomes more powerful to sit and meditate and to live from that place and act from that place in your day in life. So what I'm saying there is just, this is the beginning of somebody's meditative journey if they want to do that. It's focusing on the breath and then discovering, like I was saying earlier on, it gives rise to this experience of inner calm and peace of mind. However, that's the starting point. Then what your really meditation is, is basically becoming deeply familiar with the internal causes of peace and happiness, which you discover over time are peaceful, positive states of mind, such as wisdom, compassion, love, acceptance. Meditation, you move from gaining this experience of your potential to change, to find a deeper peace and happiness, to using your meditation to basically look at yourself, look at others, look at life with a wisdom that enables you to naturally give rise to peaceful, positive minds, such as a warm heart and a loving concern for the people we share our life with, eventually just for people, yeah. uh, compassion and empathy for people, uh, acceptance of challenges and difficulties like we were looking at earlier. So in the Tibetan definition of meditation, you use the word gom, and gom just simply means to familiarize. And what you're basically doing is becoming deeply familiar with the wisdom that gives rise to increasingly peaceful, positive minds in everyday life, not only when you're sitting in meditation, but the ability to maintain those warm heart and loving concern, empathy, compassion, acceptance through the power of your increasing mindfulness in everyday life. So meditation is this deep inner transformation. I mean, the deepest work you can do in your heart to let go of all of the turbulent emotions, the underlying mental habit patterns that generate those traumas that we've experienced in our life, how we can begin to process those deeply in meditation and to cultivate that goal that we were looking at earlier on, that potential within us for love, compassion and wisdom. So in your daily meditation session, you're doing that. And as you start to train in that way more and more, you start to just naturally live from that peaceful mind and good heart more and more. So it's this starting point with the breathing meditation, discover your potential then start to do the deeper meditations to basically let go of those unhealthy mental habit patterns that continually disturb our peace of mind and give rise to anger, stress, anxiety, and so forth. And then cultivate that potential within us for those peaceful, positive qualities of mind. And then what happens is the more you deepen that experience in meditation, the more you can live from that place in your heart in everyday life and continually improve your mental, emotional well-being, the progressive development of all those good qualities of the heart. So you should start to live from that place more and more consistently. Again, as I was saying earlier on, not always perfectly, certainly in my experience, but more consistently over time. I find that often defining, over-defining terms or language can be a barrier for us with this kind of stuff. You mentioned the word happiness. That often is a big problem because people have differing views of what happiness means. And um, similarly with the word meditation, people think it needs to be a, a certain thing. But as you've pointed out there, it's not necessarily a certain thing. It's a process within yourself to not, not achieve a, a destination, but to spend more time in a state of peace and calm. So it's not a, I'm, I'm trying to achieve a, a certain goal with my meditation here. And it does absolutely you get points for certain things and it gamifies it, which I understand. But the language that we use sometimes restricts the experience that we're actually looking for. 
it's a state and an experience of being. And again, I'm even struggling now with the words to describe it. But what I have personally felt is this. I remember Naval Ravikant once said, it's not necessarily peace of mind. A lot of the time it could be peace from mind. Just this a, a break, a sense of calm where you're not focused on, as you said, all the chaos and the moving parts and the things you're thinking about. You're just allowing them to pass through and wash through and you're existing in this state of calm where you're not saying, I ignore all these things. This is part of my life. But you're also not focusing your attention on all these things. You're just being. And if you can achieve that, in my experience, in a state of meditation, which for me is, it's rare for me to have this idea of bliss. I don't get a a state of bliss, but it's almost like uh, myself and James were discussing this word earlier on, a a sense of down-regulation of the nervous system, if you want to call it that, a sense of connection with a, a deeper part within myself that's just calm. It's not glowing lights and 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 gold and singing angels and stuff like that. It's just a sense of calm while everything is happening. So it's not the world needs to be peaceful before I can be peaceful. It's I can be peaceful in the world. But again, even those even those words are limited in terms of, I mean, you've obviously experienced this and anybody who's listening now who does any sort of meditation or breathing or has found that state in, in, in within exercise or relationship or like that, they're familiar with what I'm trying to say here, but it's a state. And as you've said, there's there's levels that you can progress through with this state and you become more familiar with the state and you can maybe access this state on a more regular basis. And it's not perfect, as we said before, like there's things are going to happen. But as I actually, and it's interesting, I discussed this with Patrick with the breath the other day as well. If your baseline, if your general day to day, 80% of your day is existing in a little bit more of a calm way, then when, when the big disturbances do come, you're not in a really heightened state all the time. So whenever something happens, you're pushed over the edge straight away and we go into the anger and we go into the reaction and you're just at a more calmer baseline. So when the thing happens, which will happen almost every single day, you're you're still operating within that space of calm. You make better decisions. You can be conscious about it. You can understand the intent behind the action you take. If someone cuts you off in traffic, you're not immediately screaming out the window at them. You can actually process this and go, right, he cut me off. You can practice compassion. Maybe he's having a bad day. And then you can look at yourself and go, how will I react to this? I, I, do you know what? So funny. Literally happened to me this morning. I was trying to indicate out of the overtaking lane and some young fella in in a little fiesta hammered up the inside of me to try and stop me from, from coming in and then undertook me. And my first reaction was anger. I was like, I'm going to catch this guy. I'm going to pull it on top of him. And then I was like, hold on. Don't know anything about him. All that's going to do is bring more energy to the situation. I'm going to be a, a worked up and frustrated getting to work. I was like, right, just calm it down. And two seconds later, it was like, it never happened. That wasn't me five years ago. <laughs> so it's, 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 my baseline seems to be a little bit lower now. I still had the reaction, but it, it wasn't enough to push me over the edge and get me really angry and worked up. And a couple of seconds later, I was absolutely fine. Th- that's how I kind of illustrated in my own mind. And I am an infant in the world of meditation and practicing peace and stillness. And it's already having a profound effect on my life. So it's very, very powerful. Yeah, I think it's interesting that that point you're bringing up, because I've seen this so many times over the years when people just begin, you know, a meditation practice and a meditation journey. Often they can have quite a profound impact on how they're responding early on in their days and in their lives. So what happens is often the reason we're so easily triggered to get angry or stressed or overwhelmed is there's just no space in the mind. You know, like Viktor Frankl's between the space, yeah. it's like the freedom to choose. But most people just don't have the space in their mind to ex- exercise that free and conscious choice to choose to act with more wisdom. But 
if we create space in our mind, what normally happens is we're normally getting too closely involved in the situations of our life, getting very stuck on them, attached to them, can deal with them, attached to our view of what should be happening, how things should be working out. So we're too closely involved in the situation. There's no space in our mind. So meditation creates this underlying sense of space, clarity and freedom within the mind to a degree, even at the beginning. But that increases more and more over time. So now you have the space in your mind to openly and honestly acknowledge what's going on in your mind. Like you saying, you're driving along and you think, look, I'm getting angry here. But when we fail to acknowledge what's going on in our mind, we very naturally repress. So what happens for most people, they don't work with that degree. In fairness to them, they haven't learned the tools to be able to work with that. So they don't have that degree of self-awareness that you're talking about there to actually be aware and just openly and honestly acknowledge, okay, I'm getting stressed out here. I'm blaming him for how I feel, but actually, you know, it's me grasping at what I want and what I need. And I shouldn't have people cutting me up in Dublin, which by the way is impossible. (laughs) So what happens is when you openly and honestly acknowledge that you're not repressing anything, you're just being real with what's going on. And then you can make a free and conscious choice to let go of those angry stirrings, maybe focus on the breath, just clear the mind a bit. And then just accept the situation. Like you were saying, you know, it's just normal. It's like in Dublin, people are always going to cut you up. We respond and we get stressed and we get angry because there's this tension in the mind of what we think should be happening. They shouldn't be cutting me up. And what's happening? They're cutting me up. So we first let go of the tension in the mind and think, ask yourself, is this happening? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the first point. Is it normal? Yeah. So there's only one thing left to do then. Accept it be at peace with it. You're not accepting that should go on or they should just be allowed to do that. You're just accepting it is that way. But when you can do that, you have the peace of mind, the flexibility and the increasing resilience within the mind to flex and bounce back from adversity when you meet challenges and difficult people. The way we're actually able to do that consistently is through the meditation practice that creates the inner space to be able to do that, but also creates these wisdom insights or cultivates these wisdom insights into the truth of things. You can't deeply and fully accept something in your heart that you haven't really deeply meditated on. Like, I mean, really fully accept it in the moment. So when you train in meditation, you learn to cultivate these qualities like acceptance. So you maybe bring up a situation in your meditation practice that happened yesterday, maybe, you know, tomorrow morning you can bring up that. And you think, okay, so what was going on in my mind at that time? I'm thinking, they're doing this to me. How dare they? This shouldn't be happening. I can't believe this is happening. That's all just thoughts and noise. At the end of the day, it is happening and it's entirely normal. So when I train in just making a free and conscious choice to fully and wholeheartedly accept that reality, there's no stress. There's no tension. There's no ability for anger to build in my mind. I'm fully accepting of that situation. So when I do that at a deeper level in meditation, I get into a more subtle, peaceful mind and I go through that scenario and I deeply accept in my heart. You'll notice that if you keep doing that regularly, the next time a car cuts you up, you'll just instinctively relax and accept. Because you're developing what's called, within this understanding, mindfulness, you don't forget that deep insight in your heart. And so you're able to work with it in your day in life. And that's what I was saying earlier on, Dan, when people think meditation is just like, I don't know, you know, balancing the mind when it's this state of overwhelm or anxiety. Yeah, that's a starting point, definitely. And it's a really helpful practice. But it's not. It's about really developing deep insight in your heart and what's true about yourself, others in life, transforming your mind at the deepest level, healing the deepest trauma, healing the deepest issues, and also developing this wisdom that enables you to respond naturally in that way when things go wrong in your day and your life. 
this is a beautiful teaching moment, right? And this is going to resonate deeply with anybody who's in a relationship or has ever had someone tell them to just calm down before. Because this, <laughs> this has been a, a common occurrence in my life. When something like this happens, someone will often turn to you and say, you shouldn't let that bother you. Or you should just calm down. But what you've just explained there, it's, 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 it's really, really great. What you've explained there, and you actually used the word train in, in what you were saying there. This is a skill that you can develop and train. You have to develop and train. So when someone says to me now, oh, you should just calm down, what they're actually saying is, there's a series of practices that you can engage in that will develop your resilience <laughs> to, to, to situations like this. But to expect me to have no training in this and to just calm down, I have a lot of um, I have a lot of compassion now for people like who who, who can't just calm down and who just react because that was me and still is me to a large degree, but I understand now that it it does take a conscious practice in order to in order to to bring yourself to a state where you don't get triggered by these things and uh, or when you do that you can downregulate yourself or you can recenter yourself. There is a practice involved, which is why meditation is such an integral part of this. Um, and you've nicely explained as well, like the word meditation. If we can look at it as a concept rather than a specific thing. That's very helpful as well, because my next question for you is, as, as a practical guideline for people, many people listening to this podcast, and myself included, don't have or aren't currently making the time, maybe for a 10-minute or a 20-minute meditation practice in their day. However, there are other ways to maybe integrate that into your life that you don't necessarily at the start have to completely disrupt a part of your morning. For example, I have three children in the mornings are inc incredibly busy. Now, I could wake up in the morning, and do my meditation practice. I actually prefer to do it sometimes in the evening. Um, but I think sometimes people get overwhelmed when they think, okay, right, so I've got to get up and do my 10-minute meditation and then I have to do my breath work and then I have to do my uh, reading for the day and then I have to do my affirmations and I have to do my journaling and then I have to have my green shake and then I have to make breakfast and I have to spend time with the children. And I'm like, hold on, that's four hours already. So I'm getting up at three o'clock in the morning before. I so it gets a bit overwhelming for people. Um, but what I sometimes like to explore is, is there a way to get us started on this journey that we can just start to, to build a practice into how we currently live. Now, obviously, ideally, we want to explore this and grow this and maybe develop a conscious practice around it and dedicate some time in our lives to it. But at the start, to start off and dip our toe into this, is there, is there a way to, that you would like to ease people into this world? I'm sorry, I'm just going to turn off this radiator because it's so sure. warm in here. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, so to that point, I think that's really important is that when anyone's approaching this, they have to think to themselves, I need to do this in a way that feels doable for me and pressure free to me. Because as soon as we maybe think, oh, well, I've now got to sit and do 10, 20 minutes of meditation a day, it's never going to happen. So it's more, it goes back to what we were saying earlier on, when anybody asked me this question, you know, like, how am I going to fit it into my busy life? I'd say maybe spend a little bit more time on the why for you. And I don't mean the why because the way I've explained it or any teacher explains it, what is the why for you? Like, wh what are you trying to accomplish through your meditation practice over the longer term? Not what are you trying to accomplish now, alleviate symptoms of stress or anxiety. Again, like we looked at earlier on, if you're doing that, you probably find you'll come up against that as soon as you turn in and you'll feel discouraged by that. What is the long-term strategy you're trying to accomplish through your meditation practice? I want to get to a place at some point in my life where when somebody cuts me up in the road, I'm not bothered at all. Okay, well, great. That's your why. Or I want to get to a place in my life where I do get anxious now and again, but I'm able to work with those anxious feelings without feeling identified with them, stuck in them, nothing I can do to move beyond them. Well, great. That's your why. Or I just want to be able to 
walk in to the breakfast in the morning with my family and friends and just have a warm heart and loving concern without having to overthink about it and move my mind to them and see what I can do for them. Really, really get in touch with your why. I mean, we can say, well, you know, through meditation, everything I've been talking about, you can develop a calm, clear, peaceful mind and the natural feelings of happiness and well-being that come from that. But it's got to resonate for you. If it doesn't resonate in your heart, don't sit to meditate. Start with your why. That why will then inform how you do your meditation practice. So when you have that why and you feel, well, that's what I'm trying to accomplish in the long term. Every time I sit, I'm making an investment in that long term goal, that long term uh, strategy and not looking for immediate hits. I'm not looking for immediate hits of relief or so forth. I'm, I'm investing each day and that comp like compound interest that will build up over time. So if we start with the why, then start to get very realistic around what's doable and pressure free to you. Because if you push yourself to meditate, it's the complete opposite of the purpose of meditation. Yeah. Putting pressure on yourself, having to do long sessions, you're going to give up within a week. Just like even if it's just a few minutes, like you get up in bed in the morning, uh, if you have the time, like and you just sit up, sit your back up straight, don't touch the phone and just start focusing on your breath a little bit, even for a few minutes, rather than focusing on the anxious thoughts, feelings that generally tend to kick off in the morning when we wake up. Just focus on your breath for a few minutes and just allow some settling within the mind and some degree of peace of mind. And through that, again, you know, developing that insight, I have the potential to live with that peace more and more in my day in life. And then bringing that determination to bring that a little bit into some aspect of your day in life. However, over time, the more you sit and you learn how to do it correctly, you do it consistently or you do it well and you do it consistently, gradually you're just your motivation will naturally emerge out of that. So do what's doable and pressure free. Sometimes it might be like, I don't have time because of all the kids and of everything else to sort out in the morning. OK, well, sit in a park sometime when you're out for a walk and just sit for a few minutes on a bench and turn inwards and focus on your breath. You know, a simple practice. Or maybe, you know, there are meditations like developing a warm heart and a loving concern for others through contemplating their kindness, letting go, fixating on their faults. And as you contemplate their kindness, this warm heart, loving concern starts to come more and more for people. You can do a little meditation like that. Um, so, you know, when you're going about your day in your life, you can just find little pockets of time where you just sit for a few minutes or you're sitting at the beach in Port Marnock and you're just like focusing on your breath, turning in, connecting to some peace. So use it on the go. But also what's important to understand over time, for a meditator, there are two periods of your day. There's what's called a meditation session and then what's called a meditation break or the meditation break. So the meditation session is, is, is your formal practice. When you sit down, you turn in and you engage in your meditation practice. The meditation break is not a break from meditation. It's just basically the break from the formal practice. It's the rest of your life. It's the application. I the application in everyday life. So if you're getting some time to sit and meditate, carrying those experiences and insights into your day and into your life. For example, I said earlier on, meditation is becoming familiar with the internal causes of peace and happiness, which we become to discover peaceful, positive states of mind like love, compassion, empathy, acceptance. When you are going about your day in life and trying, for example, with your family, your friends to maintain a warm heart and a loving concern for them, effectively speaking, you're meditating because you're familiarizing your mind with the internal cause of peace and happiness, which is that warm heart and loving concern. So as you start to improve your meditation practice, you think, oh, what well, I didn't get to sit and meditate today. Don't worry about it. 
just simply carry the experiences that you're gaining in meditation and try and live from that warm heart and loving concern or accept when somebody cuts you up on the road. That is, in essence, a training in meditation because you're familiarizing your mind with the internal cause of the peace and happiness. And why would you not want to? Yeah. All we want is peace and happiness. So sometimes people say, well, I didn't get to meditate today. And, you know, like, oh, I'm just like a failure at this. I I say, no problem. Freak. Yeah. No problem. Just work with it in the meditation break, what you already have some experience of. Use that in the meditation break. But eventually you discover, as a friend of mine recently said, it can only be a meditation break if you have a meditation session. Uh. <laughs> so eventually it's not like I never meditate and I just have this meditation break. No, I just find a time where... I can get back on my meditation seat and just get this experience again and then carry it into my day in life. So for people who are really busy, you don't need to be sitting on a meditation cushion or in a meditation chair to love your family. Mm. You can be sitting watching the telly with a warm heart and loving concern and effectively you are meditating. That's very interesting. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just too stiff. It's like we have to kind of think we have this very rigid approach. It's much more flexible than that. Okay. That's, that's very encouraging. And um, the breath is, is the breath, because I've heard, I've heard some conversation around this. The breath is, it's just an anchor point to help us focus in because I have heard. And again, it's, it, it, you do get the extremes in any practice where people become a little bit elitist about their meditation practice. And some people would say, if you're using the breath to focus on your meditation or if you're using music or guidance, you're not really meditating at all. So it doesn't count. And yeah, maybe there are different um, states of meditation and different levels to meditation. However, that can always be a turning point or a turn off point for anyone who's looking to get into meditation who currently maybe needs to focus on the breath or needs to use an app or you need to use music like music, not music, but nature sounds really help me. If I don't have the nature sounds, it's just I find I get a bit more distracted, a bit easier. So it helps me to achieve what I'm looking for a bit easier. But sometimes you have this elitist approach to no, if you're using your breath or if you're counting or if you're doing any of these things, it doesn't count. Yeah, I mean, I mean, inevitably, there's always confusion around, any, as you know, any practice. And I'm sure, you know, all of the experts you've had in, I'm not saying an expert, all the people you've had in who have experience of these things, um, they'll all explain, you know, that actually, I'm sure, eventually you just realize you've got to be much more relaxed about yeah. the whole thing and not get so uptight. However, when we're talking about focusing on the breath, that is a form of meditation practice. You're focusing on what we call a meditation object. The, the object of focus, not like a physical object, an object of focus on the breath, the sensation of breath. And what you're doing is as you focus on that, you're creating uh, this experience where you're in, in, inducing that settling within the mind and that increasing peace of mind. So imagine your mind like an ocean, you know, the waves are popping up, constantly coming and going, which is what our mind is actually like. It's just like an ocean of thoughts, feelings, emotions. Why it's quite unusual that we think these thoughts, feelings, emotions have some fixed inherent quality that can't change because we know they come and go. I mean, how many thoughts, feelings and emotions have you had since we've been sitting here? And where have they gone and where have they come from? You know, it's like they come and they go. But when you're focusing on the breath in meditation, you're actually focused on a process that's causing this settling within the mind because you're not following the thoughts, feelings, emotions. So you are meditating. And what you're doing is you're connecting to that deeper peace within you because when the waves of your thoughts, feelings and emotions aren't given the power we give them by following them, they just do what all waves do. They return to the ocean of the mind. And as those waves begin to settle, you start to connect to that deeper peace, happiness and freedom within the mind. So you're meditating, definitely. And I would say for anyone, just use what you can at the beginning. But meditation eventually is this entirely mental action. It's in basically described as a mental action. But start where you're at, just you know whatever works for you. 
But what you're trying to do is you're never doing anything inherently wrong. Nobody's ever doing anything inherently wrong. We're just learning how to do it better and better over time. Eventually, you want to turn in from all distractions and turn in fully in and just work with the mind. But that's a process, as you say. It's a process of getting to that eventually over time. But work with what works for you at the beginning. And as you start to get into that experience of turning fully inwards, you realize I don't need the guided meditations. I don't need any sound. I just need to really quiet my mind, get into this space and then start to work with the stuff in my mind and work through the stuff in my mind, start to cultivate that potential. So it's this entirely internal practice at the beginning. However, I would strongly encourage anyone who is thinking to learn to meditate at the beginning, definitely to get a guided meditation so that you can be guided through it. It's a bit like, you know, when you're a kid and if I just handed you a bike, no stabilizers on it, it would be a bit of a mess. And so what do we do? We encourage children to just put the stabilizer on and give it a go for a while. And when you get confident, go with it. It's the same. Whatever works for you at the beginning, great. You know, whatever's helping us just settle a little bit from all of this crazy, busy world, that's great. But then know that there's there are levels, as you were saying, there are levels and levels and levels of this that you can begin to work with at deeper levels over time. But at least make it feel real for you and enjoyable for you and doable and pressure free to you. Yeah. And then gradually all the other stuff will come naturally in time. Yeah, it's a, it's a super point um, because there's so much low hanging fruit for most people that we don't immediately need to jump to, to, to three month meditations as we speak or silent retreats as we we're speaking earlier on. Um, I, when you say guided meditations, obviously it would be lovely to have a, a guide with you. The apps and stuff like that, are they okay to use? I'd say to anybody, anything that helps guide you through the meditation, like apps and so forth, if they're like, you know, good quality that are guiding you in a a way that you can discover through your own experiences, increasing your peace of mind and happiness, it's fantastic. We all need these kind of tools at the beginning. But gradually, like anything, as you develop the confidence in your own meditation practice over time, you don't need nothing other than the quiet of your own mind that you can Mm -hmm. turn in and work with it. Um... Yeah. So I would say, yeah, apps can work really well. You know, you know, sometimes attending a live class, I find people really, it's that kind of like using that analogy in a different way, a rising tide that lifts all boats. It's like if everybody in the room is kind of meditating together, it tends to create an energy. And I find that people often will say, I've been meditating on an app for years. And then I came to a class and actually I felt that energy and it just helped me go in a bit. So that's really good as well. But definitely, you know, if you can use an app that works for you, great. Yeah. And conversely, there might be some people who feel a little bit self-conscious in group settings. So it might be better for them to start off. But again, it's like anything. Explore different variations and see what works for you. I'm actually going to ask James here. So I'll give you a second to turn your mic on there. Because uh, James has done a lot more in terms of meditation practice than I would have done. Um, James, you... And, and James, James is 26, so he's actually in a younger demographic where it might not be as common because there's a lot more input, a lot more going on, a lot more stimulus. Um, but James spends a lot of time focusing on his own sense of calmness and peace. What, what have you, based off what we've spoken about today, James, what, what have you experienced from your own meditation practice? wasn't expecting to get thrown in there, Dan. Well, I'm, I'm, in, the, sure I'm, in, I'm there. in the deep end uh, <laughs> right now. He was meditating back there. I was meditating, yeah. Um, but yeah what's meditation done for me? I definitely feel it's given me peace of mind. And it's also helped me, you know, develop a lot of confidence in myself because through meditation, you really learn who you, you know, when you're sitting with yourself and you're observing your thoughts and you're seeing your thoughts as they are, there's, um, there's a lot that can come from it. And I, I find a definitely from meditation, I've grown to have a great relationship with myself as well. Probably the most powerful thing is like a deep rooted relationship with myself. And that inner peace is just good for the soul. And I believe through meditation, I, I, I almost say I've found spirituality. Like I found, yeah. like, we're all spiritual beings. Everyone's got a spirit inside and like a soul. Um, so yeah, meditation's done a lot for me. Sorry, I 
went round in circles there with that one, but no, no, yeah, it's it's a beautiful experience and much more mindful of everyone and me, relationships, friendships on a much more deeper scale. And do you have a, a if you'd like to share? Do you have a particular practice that you do? Um, just um, I used to use Headspace for a year and a half. The first year and a half, I was doing meditation. Don't use it anymore. Um, but like Adam was saying there, just kind of sit myself. I just, all I need is my breath. I just need, you know, a place to do it. There's a great phrase I heard from Jay Shetty. He said, time has memory, location has energy. So I do it in the same place, same time most oh, days. Very good. Um, and sometimes I have meditation music in the background. I just need to sit there and just focus on my breath. And that's all I need to do, really. Okay. Thank you very much for sharing that. That was lovely. No problem. Um, and actually... Go ahead, sorry, sorry go ahead. Dan. Yeah, it, it's interesting because that to me is like always like hugely inspiring because I I hear it so many times. It's um, it's that thing we were talking about earlier on. Like we can talk about this all day long, and sometimes like uh, when I'm teaching, you know, and I'm teaching and guiding meditation, sometimes I want to say nothing because everything I'm about to say before you actually experience it is just going to seem like abstract theory ah, until yeah. like James is saying, you sit and do it like consistently. And it's a universal truth that everyone can discover that deeper truth of who they really are instead of that ego limiting perspective that we all feel burdened by and stuck in and that egocentric view that it creates. But if we would solve, as you were saying earlier, and we would solve so many of these problems we see in the world. In fact, I would say ultimately it would lead to us solving pretty much all of them is if we really got much more experientially and deeply in touch with who we truly are and then started to live from that place. And my teacher, Geshe Kelsang Gyatso Rinpoche, was one of the great Tibetan Buddhist meditation masters, you know, passed away last year at the age of 91. Could, could you spell that? Yeah, <laughs> I could do, but have you got a... a <laughs> have we got another half an hour? Yeah, yeah so he, he had this kind of famous quote. He said, if everybody just cherished each other, we'd solve many of the problems we see in the world in a few short years. And it's, I know it sounds incredibly idealistic that everyone is just going to have that warm heart and loving concern for each other over time or like immediately. Of course, it's not. But if we could just maintain that warm heart and loving concern and live from that place, like, like um, James is saying about that, you know, healthier relationship with ourselves and those feelings of love and compassion and empathy, we would definitely solve so many problems in our near um, family and our friends and our work colleagues as we start to work through things, as we start to maintain that. So when we start to discover that deeper truth within ourselves, as James is saying, we have that better relationship with ourselves. We just very naturally, very naturally have a better relationship with everyone else, even if they don't have a great relationship with us. We see the potential in them. We see the struggle in them. We can accept them and we start to see people as friends instead of enemies. And then we become a solution where we are in the world. If even if in our world, it's just our family, our friends and our work colleagues, that would be hugely transformative if we were to be able to do that. So what I'm saying to James's point is that I've seen that so many times. You can say it's sometimes you need to say a lot less and let people just experience it themselves and come to their own conclusions. But the conclusions you will come to over time is this deeper wisdom insight into what's true about yourself, others and life. And that will always be true, you know, but you have to discover that for yourself. Nobody can give that to you. Yeah. You mentioned this, this phrase, universal wisdom um, earlier on today. And I was talking about all these, all these figures that seem to exist in completely different worlds, like Jocko Willink, military guy, extreme ownership, Jordan Peterson, um, academic, academic world. Um, and, and all these different people talking about, um, connection and love and spirituality and responsibility ultimately they're all circling around these universal truths that we all have to find in our own way 
And to your point and to James there as well, when you find your universal truth, it almost helps other people around you to realize, okay, he's found this truth, but that's also my truth. And it develops a much deeper sense of connection between people. I often, I've said this many times in the podcast, I have this idea. It's just a visual thing that always comes to me about these circles. And I'm drawing all these little circles and this one represents Dan and this one represents James and this one represents Adam and this one represents Jocko Willink and this one represents all these different people. And the more I develop my sense of self and identity and my universal or my, my truth, the, the kind of the bigger my radius gets for an awareness of other people and he- how much influence I have over people in a positive way and kind of help and connect. And the bigger these circles get, they start to actually intersect as my universal truth and your universal truth. We realized, oh, these ideas overlap. We all want to have compassion and connection. And, and it even if some people have slightly smaller developments of their sense of identity themselves, our work will help overlap with them and bring them in, which will help them develop, which in turn will help them touch people in their circle. And to your point, and to, I can't pronounce this man's name, but I, I, I genuinely share that belief that most people in the world would benefit if I do good work. That's how I think about it now. I'm, I'm not just doing it for me. Most people will benefit because in some way, the work that I do and James do and, and you do, and it's the reason we're, we're in this room together now because we're all doing work on certain levels and it's overlapped and now we're discussing these ideas. That proliferates and it grows among people, among hundreds, thousands, millions of people. And it can, I believe it can have a massive impact. So rather than looking, how can I fix that problem over there? It's how can I work on this in here and grow that little circle, grow that energy, grow that. And all of a sudden it starts to eventually reach out to that problem and help that problem over there. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, that's a really cool point. And I think also that there's this challenge that we have is that because we're generally hardwired to identify with this ego limited version of ourself, it creates this feeling of separation and isolation from everyone else. Mm-hmm. So that's when people are feeling, you know, profound feelings of separation and isolation, especially if they're in a really tough place. And as a result of that, they feel this kind of existential loneliness. You know, you never feel, even if you're surrounded by the whole world, you feel like there's nobody you feel connected with, you feel very separate from. As you go through that journey that you're talking about, that deeper work within yourself, that deeper discovery of what's true within yourself, what you begin to discover, there really is no separate me or you. Like what you're saying now, what you're sharing with me now is definitely influencing me. It's definitely impacting me because I'm listening to it and I'm touched by it. If there was this separate self, I couldn't be influenced by Mm. it I couldn't be touched by it but we know that even like say get on a bus in Dublin you know somebody gets on the bus and they're really angry they don't have to say anything but you feel it as soon as they sit beside you so this idea that there is this separate self is really completely mistaken we're more like the way we describe it like a Buddhist analogy is like cells in the vast body of life we all depend upon each other and we can't secure our own welfare at the cost of everyone else because the more we try to do that the more we create this highly destructive and dangerous world of course which is what's happening more and more because people are caught in this suffering caught in this pain caught in these feelings of separation and isolation and then that egocentric view of ourself and the world enable basically forces us to kind of obsess about ourselves and ignore everybody else. But that is just a completely mistaken view of yourself and everyone else. So as we do that deeper work, we start to realize actually what I do here today is definitely impacting 
the people who are listening today, the work I do on myself in the morning, for example, and you go down and you're chatting to your family, you know, you're definitely going to have an impact if you bring that warm heart and loving concern and that acceptance of them, that non-judgmental view of them, that will definitely change how they're seeing themselves in that morning. And maybe for the rest of the day, and especially because you have young kids, will have a profound impact on how they see themselves and feeling safe around you and feeling safe with themselves. So this idea that we're separate is just a completely mistaken view. We're actually all interconnected and we're constantly affecting each other and being affected by others. Yeah. And we really start to deeply reflect on that. We'll realize that everything I do work with myself. Like often people say, I don't have time for this. I've got family. I've got loads of commitments. It's just selfish. But every time you give yourself some time and space to sit and meditate and invest in your own mental and emotional well-being, and cultivate that warm heart, loving concern, empathy, compassion. What you're doing actually is every day you're investing in the well-being of everyone else around you, not just yourself. So it's not a selfish act. It's actually a compassionate act for yourself and others. That's a lovely reframing of that, yeah, because it's, it's, a, it's a very Irish thing as well, particularly an Irish mammy thing. I'll take care of everybody else except for myself. But the more you take care of yourself, the more everybody else benefits from, from this growth that you're experiencing, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, to, to, to bring this one home in a very light, a nice light topic that James actually suggested for us, death. <laughs> I, I have a, a, what I believe to be quite a healthy, positive relationship with the concept of death. And you shared uh, briefly with me this morning your kind of um, feelings on this as well, which would be similar to mine in terms of for me, it provides a frame which allows me to experience my life more. So it doesn't create a fear for me around dying. Although sometimes I get a bit panicky when I realize I'm, I'm actually really enjoying this. I don't want it to end. But it, it it almost enhances every experience in my life when I acknowledge that at some some day this is going to end. And it could be today. It could be in 10 years time. But at some point this is going to end. And also I go a little bit more extreme sometimes with this. And at some point no one will ever remember me or my name or anything about me, which seems kind of like, oh my, that's the doom and gloom. But again, it serves to enhance my experience right now. And I found this to be quite a difficult conversation with people at times because there's a lot of fear surrounding death and that fear seems to cripple our day-to-day -day experience. So when I bring up death, a lot of people are really uncomfortable immediately. Oh, don't, don't talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. That's an awful, awful um, negative thing to, to bring up. And why would we want to talk about that? And obviously there's a, there's a sadness for a lot of people surrounding death because I've had people pass away and... It's a reality of life. But for me, it actually creates a really, really useful platform to live my day-to-day -day life. And I'm not saying I think about it all the time, but I actually think about death consciously quite regularly to give myself that frame. I now use it as a tool to, to say, well, this is a beautiful cup of tea. I might never, ever get to have a cup of tea again. It seems a bit extreme, but it means I really enjoy this moment. And it's, it's helped me be a lot more present. Um, would you share that kind of thought process when it comes to death? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really... You know, it's, it's a really interesting one because the thing we fear the most and therefore think about at the least, death, is the thing that would liberate us the most and give us the greatest sense of freedom if we thought about it more consistently. And it's understandable people don't want to think about death. In fact, pretty much we never wake up in the morning thinking we may die today. But again, all of this training and, you know, you train in this in meditation, reflecting on this, it's just simply lining up with reality. The reality is we're definitely going to die. And the other reality is nobody knows when. Like death isn't an age thing. It's a people thing. You can die at any point in your life. I could just walk out of here today and get run over and my life's over. And so it's understandable that people fear thinking about that um, because 
we're kind of framing it within a different context. It's like we're just looking at it like, I don't want to think about that. I just want to get on with my life. But the thing is, because we never think about it, we keep worrying about a tomorrow that may never come. We keep stressing out about a year that may never come. And what we want to do is the more we think about death, we're just simply openly and honestly acknowledging the truth about life. If you were born, you'll die. Now, the impact that has on your mind is profoundly liberating. Most of the things we worry about, most of the things we are overly concerned about, what Buddha called the eight worldly concerns, basically resources, respect, reputation, pleasure, and so forth. All these things we grasp, but overly worry about, overly think about what somebody thinks about us. It's often coming from this, this belief that I can't be happy unless somebody has a good view of me. I can't be happy unless I have millions in the bank, whatever, a few hundred thousand in the bank. I can't be happy unless I'm constantly experiencing pleasurable moments. I can't be happy unless everyone respects me. If you really knew in your heart that you might die today, would you be worried about any of that? I'm not saying would you not work towards that. It's not like you abandon all of that and work towards like putting good money away for your retirement and so forth, because you may die today. But you may not. So it's good to plan for the future, but not to get caught up in anxiety and worry about the future. So the analogy that's often used with this within the Buddhist tradition is it's like a traveler on the road. You know, they go basically, you know, when we used to do backpack and you go from country to country to country to city to city. And every time you land in that place, you're super relaxed about the situation that you go into your hotel room, usually a bit rough in those days, but you go into your hotel room and, you know, you're not too fussy about the color of the walls or and so forth because, you know, you're moving on tomorrow. You're chatting to the people that are at the hotel, other backpackers, you're getting on well, you're not getting too uptight about them because, you know, you're moving on tomorrow. And so we really want to have that approach to life because we could all be moving on tomorrow or today. And so if we had that, we'd be much more relaxed. It's like, okay, today I'm going to live my best life. I'm going to appreciate everything that's good in my life. I'm going to work with the difficulties in my life without getting overwhelmed by them, have more wisdom and acceptance with respect to them. If I fall out with somebody today, I'm going to resolve it before the end of the day because I may not have tomorrow. Why would I carry all of that feelings of resentment and anger in my mind into a tomorrow that may never come? as opposed to let me just work with them, talk through it, accept them, keep my love for them, so that every day I'm just living my best life, because today may be my only day. So what happens is, so within, like, say, Buddhist meditators, we're encouraged and do meditate every day on the possibility that I may die today. And the reason for that is, because you come to this conclusion at the end of it, if I really were today to die today, what would be the best way to live my life? And if I live from that peaceful mind and good heart, find that increasing peace and happiness in my everyday life, well, that's my best day. And so then you really understand what real success is. Real success isn't what you get done at the end of the day. It's how you feel after the end of the day. Yes. So if you feel really at peace with yourself, you feel there's a deep, deeper love for your family, your friends and others, and you feel really genuinely happy within yourself, at the end of the day, that is real true success. Because you can be doing all day and feel miserable at the end of the day, but if we realize I may only have today, this may be the only day I have, then you're able to really use it to the best of your ability. So instead of it generating fear, it energizes you to let go of all these worries and all these overworldly concerns and just actually focus on what's really important, maintaining a peaceful mind and a good heart, finding a deeper peace and happiness within myself, helping others if I can to the best of my ability, find that within themselves, create a better world for myself and others. 
it's really interesting to me because what you're describing, every single person listening has heard of this before. There's not one person listening now who hasn't heard of using death to reframe your life, about being present, about this all can end now. It's almost become cliche to speak about, but most of us don't do it. And I find it so interesting, the human condition, like uh, this, this, this negativity bias that we have, that the way our brain works, that we have to actively train ourselves using our meditations and our practices. It's, this is an active process we have to partake in to try and bring ourselves to a, a place of peace and, and a baseline of calm, because most of the time our, our brains and it's, it's so accessible at any point during the day. Right now, you could pause this podcast right now and spend two minutes thinking about your death and how one day you will die. And the other tool I like to use is most of the people who reach their deathbed, they all, all say the same thing. It's really consistent. I wish I had done these things. They never mention work. They never mention money. They never mention sporting success. All they mention is more time with family and friends, pursuing things that make made me happy, um, sp- spending time being grateful for everything I had. They say the same things over and over again. So we have the proof, the physical proof for people who need the physical proof from these people. And we also have the ability right now to stop for one minute and reframe it for ourselves. But the vast majority of us don't because we just get caught in the torrent of the day, the things we have to do and the things we have to experience. And also there's an element of distraction of all these things we get distracted by to some degree consciously because we we have to buy new things. If we're not getting distracted, we can't buy new things. Um, But that's what I always find so interesting. Like this, nothing, most, you, you mentioned experts. I would consider you an expert in this field. You've spoken really, really well today about all of these topics. And most of the experts and people I speak to always come back to, you know, it's not the latest book and it's not the latest app and meditation practice or breathwork practice or the new pair of shoes, but it's something really simple, really achievable. And most people don't do it because they don't believe it's going to work or they can't surrender to and trust the process. And it's it's very similar with this concept of thinking about death. Yeah. And, and I think that's half the challenge with it is, is I, I saw this recently where our kind of, we're hardwired kind of to do one of two things. We're either producing, like constantly working, producing things, or consuming, so consuming okay. the things that we pay for <laughs> and so forth. And so we're always in this doing mode. We're basically always doing something. And so for many people, understandably so, they think, well, you know, you can talk about that I may die today, but as soon as I switch off this podcast, I've got to get on with doing the stuff I've got mm. to do, or I'm going to go out and, you know, do something, have a meal or go to an ent- a, a movie and something. And so we're just in this constant state of doing. And therefore, what happens over time is we lose touch with the art of simply being. And that is really in the title, human being, as opposed to human doings. But in fairness, it's just the way our society has evolved. That's the way we've become more and more hardwired. So the reason why people don't feel this deeply and consistently, even though, as you say, it's obvious that we're going to die and we don't know when, you know, there's the only certainties in life. Everyone's going to die if you were born. And the other certainty is nobody knows when. It's completely uncertain. However, for it to become common experience in your heart or common practice to really understand that deeply in your heart. It's not enough for it to be common sense. It's common sense to everyone who's listening to this. But for it to be common practice, a deep insight in your heart that guides your day in life, there's only one way you're going to deepen that at the deepest level, in my view anyway, through the practice of meditation deeply and consistently. And as I was saying earlier on, you know, we've talked a little bit around meditation but there are so many levels of depth to meditation practice to the point where you gain what's called a direct realization, just a direct insight. There's never a moment in your mind or a moment in your life where you're not aware you may die today, as opposed to now and again, you're aware you may die today. You live your life within that context. You're like that backpacker who knows they may be moving on in any moment. 
And therefore, you're always guided by that deeper insight to live your best life today in this moment, because it may be all I have. And so as you start to deepen that insight in your heart, what previously made common sense to everyone now becomes common practice and the guide by which you live your life. So today, I'm going to live my best day. I'm going to do all the things that are really meaningful, that give me a real sense of purpose, that benefit others to the best of my ability, because I may only have today. So that's what I mean by the difference between constantly doing and never giving yourself the time and space to be, as opposed to giving yourself the time and space to sit in meditation, be with yourself, be with your thoughts, be with your various different ideas and views of life and start to work through it so that you start to align and live more with that deeper wisdom in your heart that guides your day in life towards the more peaceful, happy, enjoyable life that you want. But unless we pause, we just simply can't make this really happen deep in our hearts. And I think that's part of the problem is because we're constantly doing, we feel we're like, if you press pause in your life, it's just going to come to this shuddering halt and everything will just be like really chaotic. It doesn't work that way. That's what happens when you press pause on a machine. We're not machines. When we press pause and we turn in and we start to work with these insights, these understanding, these meditation practices, we actually start to improve our life significantly and start living our life from a whole different perspective. And from that flows all of our actions and so forth. So I guess what I'm trying to say with that, Dan, is like you're saying people kind of know this, but there's a difference between knowing it in your head and knowing it very deeply in your heart as just a truth, the way you see the world. Common sense versus common practice. I love that. Exactly. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that forward. Yeah. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Do you know what? I feel actually a sense of lightness after this conversation. A lot of the times I feel exhausted. I actually feel really light after this. It's, it's, it's been lovely exploring these ideas with you. And um, so thank you very much for your time today. If people would like to work with you. Is that a possibility? Can people reach out to work with you? Can they reach out to speak to you? Uh, not necessarily work with me. I mean, I teach at Tara Kadampa Meditation yeah. Centre, as you know, in Temple Oak in Dublin and around Ireland. And I'm just like a teacher at the centre and okay. I teach classes. And within those classes, there's like talks similar to what we're looking at today, those wisdom reflections. Mm. And also there's meditation practices within that. So that's where if people want to kind of try this out, you know, at that center, it's not just me, there's other teachers too, and they can experience it there. Okay. And I, I'm imagining, because this happens quite regularly, that people may, and some people say no, there's no problem, but they may want to reach out directly because people have questions after this. Is that a possibility? Is there someone that people could reach you? Yeah, definitely. If people have questions, I'm very happy to try and answer them to the best of my ability. So they can either reach out through through you, through the podcast, mm -hmm. um, and also um, our website, meditateinireland.com. There's a contact page in there. They can email me any of the questions they have, and I'll try my best to answer them um, to the best of my ability. Lovely, lovely. I'll, I'll include the contact details in all the, uh, the information with this podcast. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you. It's great to be with you, and thanks a million, Dan. Really enjoyed it. A pleasure. Well, my friends, that is us for another episode. Thank you so much for listening to myself and Adam Starr and that wonderful conversation. The momentum is building with the podcast and that is all thanks to you, the listener. So if you're enjoying these shows, please make sure that you jump on whatever platform you're listening on. Click that subscribe button or leave us a rating or a comment to let us know what you think of the episodes. And as always, I will see you in the next one.